This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Talk is Jericho, baby. Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho, mama. Talk is me. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And here we go with the Duff McKagan joke of the week. Hey, Chris Jericho. Uh, this is Duff McKagan calling you from uh, somewhere inside a, a hotel in Dusseldorf, Germany. It's a very long name with a Hoff at the end of it. Pretty fancy, actually. But I, I, would, I wanted to let you know my town, and from uh, just had its annual incest competition, and uh, I interviewed my sister. Thank you. Whoa. That one gives a new meaning to bad jokes. It's actually pretty funny, though. I told that one to my wife, and we had a little, uh, a little laugh about it. So, Duff, love you for calling uh, in those jokes every Friday. No matter where in the world you are with Guns N' Roses, you guys just headline download, played for over three hours. Thank you so much for remembering all us little people here on Talk is Jericho with all your, uh, well, little humor jokes. All right. Got a special episode today doing something a little different here on Talk is Jericho. You know how I like to mix things up. And here's what's happening. Eric Bischoff's new podcast called 83 Weeks uh, did a huge episode focusing on my time in WCW uh, just a few weeks ago. Also here on Westwood One. Go check that out. It's like four hours long and really goes in depth into my WCW run as Eric Bischoff remembers it. But I remember some of what Eric talks about a little bit differently. So I invited Eric's co-host, Conrad Thompson, to come on Talk as Jericho and give me the same treatment. Let me share my version of my WCW career from beginning to end. And we go through it, as you're about to hear, from my first meeting with Eric to my last before jumping to the WWE back in 1999. We talk about the leadership and creative direction of WCW, my relationship with Eric Bischoff and Kevin Sullivan and Scott Hall, my early matches, my first big feud, which wasn't so big, the whole Ralphus angle, and what really happened with Bill Goldberg and why that angle ended the way it did. The tables are turned on this episode. Conrad is running the show, guiding the conversation. Oh, it's all about me and my time in WCW. He's given me the chance to rebuke some things that were said on 83 Weeks and offer more details and other stories. So if you haven't listened to 83 Weeks yet, this is the uh, whole podcast about Chris Jericho and WCW, you might want to do that first and then come back here and listen to this show or you can listen to it now and then go back and listen to 83 weeks you can find that at 83weeks.com or apple podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts if you've already done that and you want to hear my side of the story here you go jericho versus bischoff and wcw my rebuttal to 83 weeks with eric bischoff starts right here right now on talk is jericho all right so um last week on uh, Eric Bischoff's podcast, 83 Weeks. 
there was a special Chris Jericho episode. And Conrad Thompson, who's here with me now, uh, you've been making a name for yourself as kind of the premier podcast host uh, in the entire world uh, recently, <laughs> <laughs> which is great. Uh, but you guys did a, a Chris Jericho episode. So um, I listened to it. I thought it was a great freaking four hours <laughs> of, uh, of talk, uh, you know, four hours of listening about myself. And I thought it would be a good idea to get Conrad on the phone to kind of give my uh, version of the stories and, and, and kind of a rebuttal to some of the things that, that Eric said, most of which were fairly accurate, some completely inaccurate, and some just total bullshit. So, <laughs> so Conrad, I'm glad that you, that you uh, agreed to do this today, man. Once again, congratulations on all your success. You've really kind of found a really cool uh, format for both the Bruce shows and the Eric shows. Hey, man, I appreciate it. You know, obviously you guys sort of paved the way for wrestling podcasts, you and Jim Ross and, of course, Stone Cold and Colt Cabana and everybody uh, and their brother has a podcast now. So <laughs> making yourself stand out is uh, something we've worked hard at. And when a guy like you says, hey, uh, do you want to come talk about your show? It's like uh, a fan's dream come true. So I appreciate the opportunity to come on here and uh, chop it up. <laughs> so, dude, I mean, we, we could talk uh, about you for hours, but let's just jump right in this because I know it's going to be expansive, and I'm going to basically let you take over the show and be kind of the, the, the guest host for the week and kind of do the Conrad Thompson treatment uh, with me. And like I said, if there's something I say that doesn't jibe or doesn't make sense, you know, take me to task. That's kind of your gimmick now, man. So I'm, uh, I want I want to experience the full Conrad Thompson experience. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Yeah, well, listen, I, I'm excited to do it. And, of course, we're responding to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff, and you can check it out at 83weeks.com. Got to get my cheap plugs in. Hey, it's worth it. Yeah, it's worth it. As a matter of fact, you should listen to that first and then come back and listen to this one. If if that's if you got if you got some extra time or or listen to that one after you you listen to this one so eighty three weeks yeah, of Eric Bischoff peanut butter and jelly man these are going to go together companion <laughs> pieces right. if you will let's let's start from the very beginning though you know you wrote in your book that you had sort of been trying to get into WCW for a while before you actually get your first big break you know what were the inroads you were trying to make to get signed to WCW because a lot of your friends had landed there whether it was a uh, Eddie Guerrero or a Dean Malenko and a lot of those guys that you were buddies with made yeah. their way into the company before you had an opportunity. Well, actually, it's funny because my whole goal when I first started uh, was to work for the WWE. Like, growing up in Winnipeg um, uh, in Canada, we didn't get NWA or, or WCW. Uh, all we got was AWA and then and then WWE, WWF, of course, at the time. So I was really obsessed with the WWF. I loved Hulk Hogan and, you know, and Randy Savage and Steamboat and all those guys. So, um... It was. I didn't really know much about WCW until I first met up with Lance Storm in Calgary when we were training, and he was a big WCW fan. He hated WWF, and to me, I didn't know, didn't really know what it was. I mean, obviously, I'd heard the names, so I always wanted to go to WWE. And what happened was they were were never really calling me. There was one time when I was working for Smoky Mountain, where Bruce Pritchard actually called Cornette to ask if we were available to do weekend uh, a weekend of shows. I believe it was against the Bushwhackers or something like that. Just like, you know, sometimes they bring in local guys because they need somebody to work with, whoever. Uh, we couldn't do those because I was in Japan. So I basically never had any other uh, interest in WWF. So um, I thought, well, maybe if I go to WCW, that's a good way to get into WWF. And they're not calling me anyways, so let me see what I can do. And that's basically how it all started. So... Obviously, Chris was there and Eddie and all those guys. But what I've decided to do was 
there was a show in L.A. It was the World Peace Festival, and you and Eric spoke about that. And it was kind of an independent show that was run by New Japan by Antonio Inoki and had WCW on it and AAA, and that was about it. So um, I decided to try and weasel my, my way onto that show. I knew some local guys in L.A. that kind of gave me some numbers and it was really weird because a guy called Dell James was the guy who actually called me. And Dell is is basically Axel Rose's personal assistant in Guns N' Roses for like the last 25 years. And for some reason, he was booking the show or knew somebody or whatever. And that's how I got on that show in the first place. And Eric, of course, was there. So uh, the night before, there was a uh, party uh, like, uh, you know, like a welcome to the to the show party. And Benoit was there. And I was, uh, you know, a bunch of other guys. Like Asai was there, and uh, maybe, maybe even Mysterio was there. I can't remember, but some guys that I knew. And that's when um, Benoit introduced me to Eric Bischoff. And I remember it was a very quick conversation. And uh, Benoit introduced me to him, and then he said to me, "Hey, you know, do you want to come work for me?" And I, I couldn't believe it. Like I just couldn't believe that's how easy it was after <laughs> six years of, you know, Japan and Mexico and Germany and. You know, ECW, Smoky Mountain, and toiling, and no one's calling me back. And I had called WCW for years. I remember I called uh, Haku, actually gave me Flair's number when I worked with him in Japan, uh, and Janie Engel's number. And I called Janie Engel for, for months. And I remember one time Flair was in Aruba, and one time Flair was in a business meeting, and one time Flair was watching it, washing his hair. You know, he was the booker at the time, and I could not get through to him ever. Uh, so finally, to get this this meeting with Bischoff and for him just to go, okay, you know, congratulations, you're, you're coming to work for me in like one second, just really blew my mind. Yeah, and it's one of those stories that sort of has a lot of different angles because at the time you were doing some stuff with ECW, and Paul Heyman is on record as saying when he found out Bischoff was at the show, he knew you were gone, and he was telling people in the office of ECW, hey, we lost Chris Jericho. So clearly, everybody knew that you had you know, sort of major league talent, and you were ready for that next level. And when you have that follow-up meeting with Eric Bischoff in Atlanta, I believe you guys met at Jack and Jill's, which is like a sports bar in the bottom of the CNN Center, or it used to be. And well, that's where you guys sort of have a conversation about money. And this is one of the things that Eric really took, you know, great offense to that you wrote in your book. You referred to the, the conversation about money and his offer is even exceeding what your original expectation was. And you sort of wrote in your book that you understood why he was called AT American. He took issue with the he name, did. but you were probably just meaning that that he was very generous in the negotiation. Set the record straight there. Yeah, well, beforehand too, I want to point out one more little thing that was really interesting to me. So when I met Eric the night before, and he kind of said, "Come, come talk to me uh, about uh, about you know coming to to, to work for me. Um, I'll bring you to Atlanta, and and we'll have a conversation." The next day at the show, I saw him there, but he left before my match. And <laughs> I always thought that was pretty funny. He's got this hot young upstart, this prospect, and he didn't bother sticking around to see my work at all. So uh, I don't really know. I think he had seen a couple tapes that, that had gone around. I remember Jimmy Hart had uh, shown the match of me and, and, and Ultimo Dragon at the Sumo Arena from the year before. Um, to him, so I guess he had seen enough, or maybe had heard enough from Benoit and the guys. I know Mick Foley. Well, that was for DCW, but Benoit and and uh, and and I think Paul Orndorff had seen that tape. So I guess he had heard enough where he didn't need to stick around to watch. 
So anyways, we make a, a, a day to fly to Atlanta. And once right. again, it's one of those things where I'm flying there. This is how much the business has changed. They're like, okay, uh, here's your ticket. And I'm like, well, how am I supposed to get to CNN Center? I don't really know where it is or anything. And they're like, well, you can take the MARTA loop, which is basically the subway. Like, there's no car waiting for Chris Jericho, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> or anything like that. It's like, take the subway, figure it out. Here's a map. You know, take the A train to the B train and go from there. But in the meantime, right about a week before, I got a call from Kevin Sullivan. And he said uh, he wanted to bring me down for a, for a, a, a TV taping to take a look at me uh, for those main event TV shows. And it was something along the lines of, I'll give you five matches for 200 bucks each, and we'll see what goes from there. Or maybe it was 10 matches for 200 bucks each. It was the course of this TV taping. So 10 matches is probably too much, but maybe five was, was whatever. Because it was a 10-day – I'm sorry. It was 200 bucks a day for 10 days because you go down to, to Disney Studios, and they would do all the tapings for the worldwide and all that stuff. So he basically gave me an offer for 10 days for $2,000, and when we're done, we'll let you know what we think. And I know what that would have been, total just jobber stuff. I think he was doing right. it just to shut somebody up. Maybe Ben was in his ear. And I'm like, well, Kevin, uh, thank you for calling me, but I'm actually going to meet with Eric, you know, to the CNN Center, like, you know, tomorrow or next week or whatever it was. And he was like, oh, I heard nothing about that. Okay, so I guess you don't want this offer. I'm like, well, I don't know if I really need it now. I don't need a you know, $2,000 10-day right. offer when I'm going to go meet with your boss, you know, a week from now. So that was kind of, once again, the starting of, like, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. So we went to, uh, I went to CNN Center. I didn't take the subway. I rented a car. I think it was the first car I ever rented. And when I got there, uh, Eric was not in the office. He wasn't there at the time. And we weren't meeting at Jack and Jill's. We actually met in his office, in his actual office in, in CNN Tower or whatever it's called, CNN Studios or whatever, whatever the TBS station towers or whatever. I keep thinking Titan Towers, but that's not it. So I had to wait with Paul Orndorff for about 20 minutes. And talk about really awkward because Paul's not much of a conversationalist and not the friendliest guy in the world. And I don't know what the hell's going on. I'm just kind of there waiting for somebody to come save me. And I remember we talked about um, <laughs> talked about how I should get a flashy robe. You know, you need a flashy <laughs> robe. That's what you need. And and uh, and he's like, uh, how uh, uh, little guys like us are going to make the business great again. I'm like, little guys like us, like Paul Orndorff, from what I remember was working with Hogan at about 285, jacked to the gills, you know. But um, it was like, yeah, kind of real awkward conversation. And then finally Eric walked in. I remember thinking, like, he wasn't wearing a suit. I know that. He was just wearing his Eric stuff, which were basically, you know, I'm not going to say it was a leather jacket and jeans, but if, you, if I had to draw a picture of Eric Bischoff in the 90s, it would be wearing jeans and a leather jacket. And sometimes a baseball hat on backwards backstage at the shows, which he said he didn't do, which is total bullshit because he always did. Um. So that was it, and, and basically sat down with him. And what I meant by ATM Eric was that I remember when I sat down, I had been working in Japan full time, and I thought, okay, I'm making about fifty grand a year in Japan. I know WCW is full time. I gotta pay road expenses, and I gotta I gotta take a chance here, man. And I'm gonna ask him for a hundred thousand dollars. And just thinking that number and saying it out loud at the time was like asking for twenty million, like. $100,000? Who do you think you are, Jericho? Well, I got to ask for it. So when he sat down, I remember he said, what kind of money do you want? And I couldn't believe I was going to say it. And I said, $100,000. And I remember as soon as I said, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so f***ing. There's no way. He's going to tell me to get out of here. And he goes, 
And that's when he goes, I'll give you 135. And I was like, really? And he said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I want you to move to Atlanta. I'll pay your moving expenses. I'll give you 165 a year for three years. And I just, I couldn't believe it. $165,000. And then I remember I called my dad and I told him and he goes, he goes, you should have asked for more. And then you would have gotten, he said like he, he had done the same thing when he negotiated with the Rangers where he went in there and wanted to raise from 20 grand to 25 and they gave him 30. And he's like, I should have asked for 50. And, you know, so we had the, the habit of the, the, the Jericho Irvin family uh, negotiating for less money, you know. But I remember walking out of there at 165 grand and just thinking, I'm rich. I can't believe it. One of the other things that was discussed at that meeting was what maybe Bischoff had in store for you. And he's sort of laying out in his vision what Jericho would do in WCW. And he was really excited about a potential feud with Brad Armstrong. Yeah, and, and Eric was saying he, he didn't remember that, but why would I ever make that up? And then Brad isn't with us anymore, and Brad was an unbelievable guy and a great worker and just one, one of the sweetest guys you can ever meet in the business. So this is not some kind of a cut down. But if you're right. looking at where Brad, Brad Armstrong was on the roster at the time, because he did say to me, we, we, we're kind of envisioning you as our version of Shawn Michaels. You know, and, and I know he kept harping on the fact that he was making me a, a, a major part of the cruiserweight division, which he did. That's where I started. But you got to remember that that the cruiserweight vision division is not where Shawn Michaels would be. And those words were used. We want we think you know you, you you could be our Shawn Michaels, and that was his first thing that he said. And I couldn't believe that. And then to say I'm, I really would like to see a program between you and Brad Armstrong, you know to me was kind of like, well, that's not really kind of in the same vein of being WCW's version of uh, Shawn Michaels. Shawn Michaels. Right? right. So, and I know we talked about the cruiserweight division, but he I, he did say that Shawn Michaels' comment. So to me, I kind of thought maybe I'm coming in for something more than cruiserweight, which was fine. I was a junior heavyweight at the time, even though I was 225 pounds. You know, everybody's a junior heavyweight now, with the exception of like your Brock Lesnar's and Roman Reigns and those type of things. But look at every Seth Rollins, you know, uh, Dean Ambrose, all those guys, Kevin Owens, uh, uh, Sami Zayn, they all would have been in the cruiserweight division if it was WCW 1996. So um, it wasn't like I was a small, small guy, but still, that was kind of what what he said to me. And like I said, the Brad Armstrong thing was really kind of confusing. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Hey, this is Chris Jericho inviting you to the first ever Rock and Wrestling Rager at Sea. Picture this rock and roll, wrestling, comedy, live podcasting, all on the open ocean from October 27th to the 31st, 2018, from Miami to Nassau. I'm bringing Hall of Fame wrestlers, some of the greatest rock and roll bands on the planet, and putting the first wrestling ring on a cruise ship ever. Don't be a stupid idiot. Make the list. Check us out at ChrisJerichoCruise.com. Let's talk about, you know, when you actually get to work matches, because we as wrestling fans have heard for a long time that there is this weird sort of subculture to wrestling where you've got to sort of get comfortable with the new locker room and 
meet the new guys. And there's always that weird period of whose spot is he here for? And so you've got some of that going on, I'm sure. But then you have your first match, and Terry Taylor, who was an agent for WCW at the time and a member of the front office, has a pretty big response to your first match. And you wrote about it in your book, but I don't know that you've talked about it, talked about it here on Talk as Jericho. Can I haven't. Up to what do you remember about that? I worked a match. It was the very first uh, match I, I worked for WCW. It was a Saturday night taping, I believe, in Gainesville, Georgia. It might have been Dalton, one of those small cities close to Atlanta where they do a lot of those tapings. And um, I got to the building at 2 o'clock, and I walked inside, and there was nobody there except for Scott Hall and Kevin Nash, who were also at their first TV taping, or one of their first. It was No, it wasn't their first, but it was their first Saturday taping. Whatever it was, they were trying to make a good impression by showing up at 2 o'clock. I was trying to make a good impression by showing up at 2 o'clock, and the rest of the company didn't show up to like, freaking 4 o'clock or 4.30 or 5. And I still remember that of like just being there with these, you know, and once again, I'm coming from, you know, this Japan background and, you know, all these other places I've worked, but I'm still a huge fan and still very young to the business, even though I was six years in. So to see Scott Hall and Kevin Nash was like, this is really cool, man. Like, this is the company I work for now. This is the big leagues. But all three of us just sitting there, you know, kind of nervous and not really knowing what to do. And being on time, probably for the first and only time they were, because they realized after that, screw this, no one else gets here at two. So then we, we uh, I, my first match was against Mr. JL, which was uh, Jerry Lynn with the highly creative mass gimmick of Mr. JL. And we worked a match. And when you come and work a match, you know, used to working in Japan as a heel, uh, I keep saying Japan because that's where I was, and ECW was more of a rough-edged, heelish type of thing. But there's no time limits, you know, other than go 20, you know, give us 25, give us 15. Um, that was, I think, an eight-minute match, including entrances, and I couldn't believe it. Like, that's it? Like, what are you supposed to do, like, in six minutes? Like, that's, I, I can't even, that's just getting started. So I remember that I thought, okay, well, uh, I'm going over on Jerry, and it's six minutes, so we'll do a little spot at the beginning, and then he can beat me up for a while, and we'll do a couple comebacks, and there's the finish. You know, it's kind of just basic stuff, but it's really quick. Uh, and after that's when I saw Terry Taylor, and he said, like, you know, like, like, oh my God, that was terrible. Like, are you sure you even can have a clue what you're doing? And the F word was right. used, and and it might have been, you know, uh, uh, not the exact words, but I remember, are you sure that you can have a clue or something along those lines? And if you know Terry Taylor, which I know him so well now, and he's a great guy, and he actually did a lot for me in WCW, but he's very flippant, he's very almost arrogant, and when he said that to me, I was like, oh my gosh, like. How bad am I? Like, how bad could that have possibly been? But that's the first thing to hear when you come through the curtain your first night in the new co- company, the big leagues. It wasn't uh, a, a very good ego boost, I'll tell you that. Around that same time, too, you get a little advice from Chris Benoit about the way you were carrying yourself backstage, specifically with the way you were dressed. And this is years before we wrestling fans ever heard about a dress code, but Benoit thought maybe you were taking it to an extreme. Is that right? Well, it wasn't like I was wearing you know shorts and a t-shirt. It wasn't that. I mean, I used to wear suits to the uh, to the big shows in 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 Japan all the time. But Chris and Eddie too, and Dean at the time, and Regal. Uh, it probably came from Regal because Regal was always very uh, proper and dressed up, as you can imagine. And when I say dressed up, it's it's now become known as as business casual, biz cas, as we say in the in the in the business. And that would mean like slacks and a nice, you know, short sleeve polo shirt or, or something along those lines. If it's wintertime, maybe a long sleeve shirt. 
And that's what they wore all the time. And I remember Chris was not there that night at my first taping, but the second taping I had, because I went to that Dalton, Georgia taping, and then they got me to go straight basically to uh, to uh, Orlando to do the, like I mentioned, the, the, the worldwide taping sort of. So I actually had to fly from Calgary to Salt Lake, Salt Lake to Atlanta, drive to Dalton, do the show, come back to Atlanta, fly to Salt Lake, fly to Calgary, pack my bags, basically wash my clothes and fly from Calgary back to Salt Lake to Orlando. And that was all in the course of about two days or three days. Wow. Yeah. So, but, but when I saw Chris in Orlando, he took me aside and he said, you know, I heard you had a really shitty match with, uh, with Jerry Lynn. And uh, he goes, you know, you, you can't be doing that. You got to be better than that. And he goes, and you look like shit. You got to wear nice clothes. You look terrible. So I remember I went and bought like this hodgepodge collection of clothing at like some, you know, Kohl's superstore that had, you know, 18 racks of ill-fitting slacks sort of thing. Because I, you know, I was actually very intimidated by Chris at the time because he was one of, uh, not, not my heroes, but uh, um, inspiration. You know, one of the guys that I looked up to in the business and also a very intimidating guy uh, when you first meet him. So I didn't want to let him down. So the first thing I did was went and got some nice clothes. Uh, and, then I, and then I worked a match on Saturday, the Saturday morning tapings or whatever, whatever show it was against this guy called the gambler. And I was really scared because when you don't have confidence as a wrestler, as a performer, it destroys everything. And that first match with JL and Terry's comment, and then knowing that everyone's watching me, including Benoit, uh, I was really nervous. You know, I didn't really know what to do after six years of being on the job. And then I worked with the gambler and I remember he was just a meat and potatoes guy, just a, a guy like, that was probably working the territories for years, always in the middle. Uh, never really anything flashy about him, but he was really good meat and potatoes guy. He came to the ring with kind of a river gambler, like a Maverick uh, Mel Gibson movie with the, the cards, doing card tricks or whatever he was doing. And we went out there and we had a really good match. It was a five-minute you know, match for me to get me over, but it was great. you know, And it was all I needed to get back on track. But I remember when I came through the curtain from that one, Everybody that commented was like, that was really good. Good job. You did a good job. And, you know, that sort of thing. So I always kind of, I don't even know what the gambler's real name is or, you know, where he is or if he even listens to anything or knows anything. But if anybody out there listens to this show that knows who the gambler is, uh, I owe him, uh, I owe him a beer and a, a vote of thanks. So thanks, gambler. Uh, his name is Jeff Gann, and uh, his gimmick was he was uh, a Kenny Rogers impersonator. Mm. And he's from Biloxi, Mississippi. Now, now, uh, he, uh, did you know that off by heart, or did you just Google it as we were talking? Uh, come on, Google machine. <laughs> come on. Okay, so what's his name? Jeff what? Gan, G-A-N-N. I remember that. I think that I think that uh, that I have Googled in the past or that he said something, because I remember his name was Jeff. So thanks, Jeff. Great great job, man. I appreciate it. Let's talk about your character when you first debut, or maybe lack thereof. You're pretty critical of the direction, or maybe lack thereof, that you got for the Chris Jericho character, where you really didn't have a character. You're just the white meat baby face. Come on, baby, yeah. I mean, yeah. What is what? What was the the feeling? I mean, how are you trying to pull that off? Obviously, not the layers that we're going to see develop the next year. Well, and that's something else Eric took great umbrage with. And I just want to also finish up the point of the AT American. The reason why I use that is because he was so generous and gave me way more than I ever asked for. So I wasn't using ATM as, as, a, as a detriment, like, oh, what a mark. I was using it like he obviously had the money to spend, and he could have just said, okay, you want 100 grand? I'll give you 100 grand. But he, he was very generous and very fair to me, and I know that he was thinking if I went and talked to Dean or Chris or Eddie. But you have to remember, I was not at those guys' level at the time. You know, I, was, I wasn't uh, as good of a performer as Chris or Eddie or Dean and hadn't 
been there as long as they have. They'd been there for six months or a year before me and had huge careers in Japan with New Japan. So I had a good career going. But if you would have told me that Chris Benoit was making 165 and I was making 100, I wouldn't have batted an eye. I would have figured that's probably the way it should be. So I was actually putting Eric over and saying, you know, indirectly thanking him for being so generous. So, uh, and he also took great uh, offense to when I said that WCW was behind the curve when it came to, to putting me out there as this white meat baby face. Yes, the NWO was going on. Yes, the Cruiserweight division was starting, but they still have, when you have a guy in 1996 with long blonde hair, good looking guy, you know, putting me out there as a baby face, it was the time when, when the, there was a cultural shift. And you could see that's around the time of, of, of the rise of Steve Austin. Um, and I might be off by a year or so, but that was basically going on. If you looked the way I did, people would boo you, not cheer you. It wasn't back in the day when, like, you would come out there as one of the fabulous ones, you know, wearing a, a, a bow tie and no shirt, and people would go nuts. They were starting to, you know, <laughs> booing this good-looking guy with no uh, rhyme or reason to what he's doing there, minimal promo time, you know, and then and then when you talk about the first match that I had on Nitro, which you guys did speak about, me versus Alex Wright, and the fin- right. finish was Alex goes for a dive, I move, he hits the guardrail, I roll back in the ring, he gets counted out, but I either go out and break the count, or when he does get counted out, I go grab the microphone and tell Gene Oakland, hey, I'm not taking the victory like this. I'm not going to do that. The NWO, those guys are cheaters. They might accept a victory like this, but I won't. And I remember Bobby Heenan going, take the victory. What's wrong with you? Take the victory, kid. What are you, <laughs> stupid? And basically saying what what the world is saying. Why would you not take a victory? And to be painted as this kind of babyface and to be booked that way right off the bat, it was out of touch, man. It wasn't what you should be doing with a, a guy that looked like me at the start. Either either come in and have me win or have me come in as a heel or whatever it was. It, just, it was just a really tough place to be in, especially when you had the NWO who was filled with cool heels. That's all they were was cool heels if you think about that. You know, there was there was no heels in WCW except for the baby faces who people were booing because they were going up in the ring against all these guys with so much charisma that were supposed to be heels but were doing everything but healing. Well, there was some heel stuff going on backstage. Allegedly, one of your matches goes kind of long, uh, not long by Japanese standards, but long by WCW TV standards. And Scott Hall stops you and says something like, nobody is paying a dime to see you. And that's the beginning of some Scott Hall bullying that would continue years later in WCW before you finally stand up to him after maybe a little bit of support from Scott Norton. <laughs> well, Talk me through this whole Scott Hall, Chris Jericho beef. Well, I mean, you know, to this day, uh, Scott and I don't have any love lost for each other. I just don't think we ever really got along, or maybe because I, I have a real bad attitude towards him because at that time you know there's no, there's there's no secret and I'm not letting anything out that hasn't been told countless times that he was messed up quite often and those guys are very uh, sarcastic and, and almost kind of bullying in a way and you know I did things my way with my little gang of guys which was Chris and Eddie and Dean and those type of guys and they had you know the, everything else and so when Scott Hall came up to me one day unasked unannounced it was after a house show in Minneapolis when I was in the opening match against Jerry Lynn, and we had a really good match, and it was maybe it was a little long, 15, 20 minutes. That could happen, but no one was giving us any time constraints. Just go out there and work. And that's when Scott came up to me and said, "Listen, man, no one's paying to see you. Um, 
get in there, uh, do your you know do your five ten minutes and get out. No no one no one wants to see you. And I remember just thinking like an asshole, you know, like why would you say that? And then I told Chris that, and Benoit was furious because he was already mad at Hall because of that on that same loop they're in the bathroom together and uh, at, at the urinal stalls and Scott uh, pissed on Chris's cowboy boots. He just leaned over like while they were both pissing and just kind of turned to the side and pissed on his boots. Went, Sorry, man. You know, and just very, just the type of guy that you'd talk to. He just wanted to smack him in his face. So um, never really had anything to say to him or, or really got along with him. But he would always kind of like bully me and say like, you know, oh, hey, Jericho, how do you like that little Terry Taylor push? I'll get it stopped tomorrow. You know, I'll make one phone call and stop that little Terry Taylor push. You know, shit like that. I'm like, and why would you even say stuff like that? So after being prodded by this, I don't know how long it was, years, months, whatever, Scott Norton, who was a friend of mine, we'd gone to Japan together a few times, uh, basically said to me, like, listen, if you don't say something to him uh, next time he uh, he bullies you, I'm going to say something, you know, and, I'm, and it's going to, you know, I'll bully you. You know, you either do something about it or I will. And he said, and if you do something about it and he, and he wants to, cause anything you say i got your back so when scott norton says he has your back now i don't have to worry about anything <laughs> right so hall just made some other comment i just walked up to him and got his face and i said don't ever f- talk to me like that again you understand me and then that's when he, of course hey man I'm just bro-. no no there's no rib there's no joke don't ever talk to me like that again do you understand me hey man calm down yeah yeah yeah. whatever Jeez, jericho can't you take a joke that sort of thing and I remember just looking over, and Norton was like smiling and nodding, like, "All right." <laughs> but yeah, and that was a Scott Hall for you, man. And just, just you know, he was just always like that, which is a shame because you know, great worker, obviously, and a great performer. But you know, um, no love lost for him. Like I said, even even to this day. Well, you wind up uh, having your big pay per view debut against one of his little buddies, uh, Sean Waltman, who was wrestling a six at the time. You work with him at Halloween Havoc, nineteen ninety six. It's got to be a big deal to have your first big pay-per-view be at Halloween Havoc, which was really probably the marquee event for WCW in this era. I'm not sure if that was my pay-per-view debut. I think the pay-per-view debut was the one before that uh, with, against Benoit, and that's the one where, where, where Sullivan told me that it's 80% Chris, 20, or 80% Benoit, 20% you. And once again, yeah, once again thinking like, Aren't I supposed to be coming in here with like some like like I said like listen I knew the business at that point I'd been around for six years and all the trials and tribulations but when you sit at the desk with the boss who says we want to make you our next Shawn Michaels and then the Booker's telling you eighty twenty it's like what am I a job guy now like that's what you would say to a jobber eighty twenty and it's a pay per view match against me me and Benoit who you know a year earlier tore the house down at the Sumo Arena the Super Jacob second stage so I, I just really. It was another, once again, another real kind of confidence killer. And thankfully, Chris was cool. And he's like, you know, don't even listen to that. We'll do the match that we want to do. And afterwards, he got in trouble for it. Like, why did you give that guy so much? He goes, what do you mean give him so much? He's good. Like, didn't you bring him in here to do something with him? You know, that's not what I wanted. You know, the, getting all of these little signs where it's like, what am I supposed to be here? Like, what am I? You know, I, I'm kind of a nameless, faceless baby face. I don't really get a push, but... I'm supposed to be getting some kind of a push, and I got almost double what I asked for money-wise and got told a couple things of, of kind of the plan, and none of that stuff is really taking place. So it was a little bit stifling for me. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. 
Let the Home Depot help power dads doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Talk about your first big feud, and this almost feels like the most WCW story that we're going to talk about today. Your first major feud is with Nick Patrick, yeah. the referee. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell? Well, once again, Conrad, you can kind of see the pattern of what I'm getting at here as far as, like, what am I doing? Like, what, what am I supposed to be in my first big feud? Like you mentioned, I work with Benoit, I work with X-Pac, and those are just to have, you know, once again, you're having good matches, but they're, they're, they don't mean anything. And there's no there's pro- a story to it. Yeah. yeah, and and when you go in the ring with X Pac, who's in the NWO, and you know whatever he was doing, I'm not sure if they were crotch chopping at the time or whatever he was doing. Obviously, people are going bananas for them. And who's this? It's like it's like I'm a teenager in a Freddy Krueger movie. Like you're much more interested in Freddy Krueger <laughs> than you are these stupid teenagers, right? Like fuck, just kill the teenager already. Let's let's hear another funny catchphrase, Freddy, and do something cool. And that's kind of what I felt like, you know. I'm, I'm a lamb to the slaughter. It's like, well, you're the good guy. I'm like, no, I'm not the good guy out there. Like, you know, NWO are the biggest baby faces in the company. So you would go out there and just get torn to shreds by the crowd. No one's reacting to anything you're doing. And then they put me in this match with uh, with uh, Nick Patrick, and which you forgot to mention. And this is nothing against him because he's a good friend of mine. I love him. I love him to death. But I was actually managed by Teddy Long for that feud. Now, Teddy Long at the time was not a manager to the stars. This is not a Paul Heyman-Brock Lesnar relationship. This is Teddy Long, who also had in his stable Jim Powers, uh, Dick Slater, and, you know, I think, like, hard work Bobby Walker or something like that. And now he's managing Chris Jericho against a referee, Nick Patrick. And it's a one-armed match, a one-armed tied-behind-my-back match. In which the rope got untied in the first minute, and I had to just basically hold my hand behind my back, uh, pretending that it was tied up. So, so there you go. Time, <laughs> obviously, you're a little frustrated, and you get an opportunity to uh, work for New Japan Pro Wrestling, and you have one shot there at Super Liger that maybe doesn't go so well, and you write about that in your book, but then you have another opportunity to take another tour, but WCW denies that, and... You know, they sort of play good news, bad news. Bad news is you can't go to Japan. Good news is we're going to make you cruiserweight champion. And you write in your book that cruiserweight was almost a dirty word. It was a derogatory term. And Bischoff took great exception to that on 83 weeks. So I wanted you to have a chance to respond to cruiserweight being compared to a dirty word. And you even compared that belt to having the belt value of something you'd get from a JCPenney belt. Well, that's a little bit stiff. I shouldn't have said that. But two things. First of all, when you talked about the Super Liger thing and Brad Riggins calling me to get my measurements, and he said, yeah, well, there's no way that you know that I wouldn't have known about that. I don't think they did. I think they knew that I was going to Japan for the Tokyo Dome show, but I don't think they had any clue that, that, that I was going there as Super Liger because I never heard from anybody in WCW beforehand or afterwards. All I heard from was, was Brad Riggins wanting the measurements and then the story, like you said, after the Super Liger match where they took the, the, the costume back for, quote-unquote, safekeeping. 
Um, <laughs> and then when I went back the following month, because I already had processed my visas and had me on the show, I was supposed to go back for a tour of Super Liger. They ditched that. I came back as Chris Jericho, and the first night they put me in there, uh, once again, it was almost like a gambler type thing. It was like, this guy sucks. So they put me in there with Liger and a guy called Takashi Izuka, um, who was a really good worker, and we had a really good match. Okay, And afterwards, I saw Choshu in the back room, who was the booker, and he said, hey, come here. I said, what? He goes, you... You super lager? I said, yeah. He goes, oh. He goes, Jericho, good. Super lager, bad. And I said, uh, <laughs> I said, yeah, maybe super lager, die. He said, yeah, dead. So there you go. So that was the uh, redemption of Jericho again. But So what I was saying with the cruiserweight, now here's the thing. If you watched the show back then, and Eric, I think Eric in his mind is remembering the legacy of the cruiserweight uh, uh, division. The reality of it was, it was constantly ignored, constantly swept under the carpet, and really, honestly, basically meant nothing until Six won the Cruiserweight Championship. But other than that, you would have Larry Zabisco talking over everything. You'd have Shivani constantly crowing about the NWO when guys are in there working their asses off, including Eddie, including Benoit, whoever else was in there. Um, I remember uh, uh, guys would do dives and Zabisco go, that was stupid, what an idiot that guy is isn't the whole concept of the cruiserweight division to take risks, right? But the biggest thing right. of all was, I can remember working with Jim Neidhart, uh, and then they had me go over and Jim Neidhart, and Neidhart going, well, what do you mean? I'm not a cruiserweight. He's a cruiserweight. What do you mean i got to lose to him? So cruiserweight was, like I mentioned, it was like being a leper, like a cruiserweight? Bah, ha, ha. Booker T, when it was me and uh, Eddie versus Booker T and Dean for a series of matches both on TV and the house shows, Booker said, Come on, man. What am I working with these cruiserweights for, man? Why am I working with these cruiserweights? It was almost like like it was it was a detriment to be in the cruiserweight division. Uh, it's the same reason why they took they took Benoit out of there as, as soon as they could when he started working with Sullivan. He wasn't a cruiserweight anymore. So to be in that division, yes, the concept of it was great, and there's some great memories of it. But at the time, if you were in that, it meant it meant you weren't ever working anywhere near the main event. It meant that you had no potential to be in the main event, and to even work with guys that weren't cruiserweights was impossible to get those chances because they didn't want to work with cruiserweights. So, you know, like I said, I don't know if Eric knows about those sort of things, but there was actual, like I said, complaints from having to work with quote-unquote cruiserweights. Meanwhile, those guys, the best match Jim Neidhart probably ever had was against me. You know what I mean? You know, and Booker was having these great matches every night with, with me and Eddie, uh, with Dean as his partner, I mean, cruiserweight, schmoozeweight is guys that know how to wrestle and guys that know how to work, you know, and that, that to me was lost under this cruiserweight moniker that was used as almost a detrimental term in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, they weren't, they weren't main eventing Nitro. They weren't the featured match on any, any of the television or pay-per-views, but it is sort of the long-lasting legacy of WCW. When people talk about the yes. stuff they remember yeah. most about WCW, it's usually the NWO and then the Cruiserweights in that order. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why WCW was beating WWE was, was because of that in that order. Because what happened at the time was that WCW had the star power on top of their matches were always bad. And the undercard was always great. In WWE at the time, the undercard was always bad, but the main event matches were great. And that was why there was any... Uh, 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 war whatsoever is because WCW had the names on top 
WWE had the quality on top, but the undercard of the cruiserweights is what WWE based their bread and butter on. We would go do house shows. I remember there'd be seven matches on a house show, and the first three matches would basically be lucha guys, and there would be me and Dean right before intermission, and then there would be like you know a Chris Adams versus Bobby Blaze, maybe a tag match, and then DDP versus whichever low-level member of the NWO was going to show up that week. You know, maybe it was uh, Brutus Beefcake, or maybe it was Virgil, or maybe it was I don't know Brian Adams or whoever it would be. And that was your house shows. There'd never be Hall and Nash. There'd never be Hogan. I mean, very few exceptions of that. But the reason why people went to those shows, or at least left somewhat happy, was because they got to see our matches, the, the, the cruiserweights, so to speak. You get your chance to become cruiserweight champion when Six drops the belt to you, but it happens at a house show in Los Angeles. It doesn't even happen on TV. No. How did that come to be, and... Uh... Is that sort of I uh, think, like kissing your sister, as they used to say on commentary? Yeah, I think that uh, Waltman didn't want the cruiserweight title because he wanted to work in the main events, Why, as, as he should, you know, totally, because uh, he was the guy that would bump in all those Hall and Nash matches. He was the guy that could right. hold it together. So, you know, cruiserweight champion, once again, no, I don't want that. And uh, that's when I, they wouldn't let me go to Japan. I remember Eric saying, you know, absence makes, makes the heart grow fonder, and I was really hot about it because I was like, you're not doing anything with me here. Just let me go to Japan. I'm happy there. And he's like, no, we're going to make a cruiserweight champ. I'm like, oh, that's cool. You're going to beat six. All right. On a house show. Okay. And it's after he has a 15-minute match against Rey Mysterio. Then you go down there and beat him in 30 seconds. So where's the logic in that? Once again, remember what I'm telling you about me being this kind of like uh, aimless, uh, drifting, nameless, faceless baby face, right? And now I'm coming down to finally get a moment and beat a member of the NWO. But I only beat him after he's been taken to the limit in a 15-minute match against Mysterio. They booed the shit out of me that night because it's like I came down and for whatever, like I was able to get the challenge or called it or ring the bell right now and beat him in 30 seconds. People are like, "That's bullshit! You just came and beat a guy who's already been working for 15 minutes. You know, he's already beaten up. You know, it's like that's what a heel would do if I had a Money in the Bank briefcase or something like that. But I didn't. So just everything that. You know that was that was under the auspices of getting some semblance of momentum, was done very backwards. Like, what what would the harm have been to do? Like, I don't know. Maybe it's me versus six on Nitro. Maybe he's going to go work with Benoit after, just as a name. And I'm, you know, we're having this match, and you know, the, the typical Benoit comes down and causes the distraction, and I roll up the heel, and the heel's pissed off, and I win the title, and people are cheering, and then he goes off and works with Benoit, and I go off as the champion. To beat six on TV was not a big deal. But because it was the NWO and because it was me or Cruiserweight or whatever, they did it on a house show in Los Angeles with, with this, you know, after he'd worked with somebody else for 15, 20 minutes. Well, and I'm sure you're fired up for what's next because you uh, drop the title to Alex Wright the next month and then get your rematch at Road Wild and then eventually later in August win the belt back from Alex Wright. So I see why you were fairly frustrated. And even here you write in your book that to this point you're like more than a year in You've never actually signed your contract. Yeah. In principle, you had agreed, but you never put pen to paper. So you write in your book that you reached out to Don, Don Callis about putting in a good word with Vince Russo. Of course, Callis at the time is working with the WWF as part of the Truth Commission, and Vince Russo is sort of the head writer for the WWF at the time, and you didn't go through with it out of some weird loyalty to Bischoff who you didn't feel like was using you right. Carry me through your thinking at the time and why ultimately you decided to stay. Well, it was more of just a game. Like how? how like I remember, I, I, th- I thought about like uh, after six months or so, I was like, they still haven't even asked me to sign this contract. You know, it wasn't like I just woke up one day and went, "Oh, it's been seventeen months." It's like I was keeping track of it, and then I was like, "I'm, I'm not going to say anything." 
You know what I mean? I, I'm still getting paid, and you know, I was never really thinking about jumping. That's not in my. That's not in my. Uh, uh, in my DNA, like I signed for three years and I was going to stick there for three years. I didn't want to double cross and just leave. Not that anybody would have really cared, but I, they, of course they would have cared. It would have been a, a, a double cross thing to do. But I remember just like, I, I'm just going to go as long as I can. And they had somebody in charge of contracts. Maybe it was Gary Juster or somebody. And then they brought in, you guys talked about Diana Meyer. And I remember all her, her nose was always running. That's what I remember about Diana Meyer. She always was like, had snot coming out of the side of her mouth, like post nasal drip. And finally, she's the one that, that sniffed it out. It's like, oh, you know you haven't signed your contract? I was like, what? What do you mean? I thought I did. She's like, no, you haven't. And I was the cruiserweight champion at the time. I'd been cruiserweight champ maybe two or three times. And, and that's, you know, like I said, I thought briefly, though, maybe I'll just jump. Like, I'll just leave. You know, screw this. But, but once again, like I said, I, I, I didn't really feel that was the right thing to do. Maybe I'm too honorable or maybe too a fault, too loyal or whatever it may be. But I didn't reach out to Don Callis. Don Callis uh, actually reached out to me. And if... If that's why I wrote my book, then 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 it was wrong. But but he he actually said, listen, because um, Don was working in the office at the time, he was doing some writing with them and all that sort of stuff, and he said, listen, Vince Russo said he's a big fan of yours, and if you ever want to talk to him about coming to WWE, just let me know. And I did talk to him around that time frame, but then I thought, well, maybe um, maybe it's not the right time to go. Uh, and then a year later, I called him again, and that's when, you know, I know we'll probably get to that. That's when the wheels were set in motion for me to go. But at that time, after a year and a half, I just felt like I should stick around and give it a little bit more of a shot. And, and like I said, I didn't feel it was the right thing to do to, to jump. I didn't think that would, that would paint me in a good light to, to Bischoff, and I didn't think it would paint me in a good light to Vince McMahon either, knowing that I basically walked away um, halfway through. So uh, that's kind of why I didn't go. Eventually, you'd wind up dropping the uh, Cruiserweight title to Eddie Guerrero at Fall Brawl 97. But I want to talk about Halloween Havoc 97 because what a small world it is, especially what's happened recently for you. Yeah. You wind up getting a win over Guido at Halloween Havoc 97. You nearly break your neck in the match. But all these years later, it's kind of fun to look back and consider where everybody is today, is it not? Yes, but Conrad, repeat after me. Guido. Sorry. Guido. Guido is what uh, Ukrainian kids call their grandfather. Like, my grandfather's name is Guido. So he's Guido. Like, uh, gay. Guido. So there you go. Just so you know. It was driving me crazy last week. We kept saying Guido. It's like, he's not my grandfather. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, surprise, surprise. I've never met Guido. But he's never made a stop here in Huntsville, Alabama. So my apologies to Mr. Guido. Just so you know, uh, and you guys talked about it, uh, that Guido match was insane because... Uh, the night before, uh, the, the the we were in the MGM Grand, and downstairs there's a there's a kind of a circle bar called Betty Boops, and that's where the guys would all hang out. And I saw uh, Terry Taylor, and uh, we were talking about the match, and he said, "Yeah, and Gato's going to go over." And I was like, "Why?" Like he wasn't even under contract. They were bringing guys over that that were New Japan guys or affiliation with New Japan. Because I think Gato was well, he must have been working New Japan if they brought him over. But we had worked together in WAR. And I said, you know, what do you mean? He's not even under contract. And he's like, well, you know, um, I don't know what his excuse was, but I do remember him saying, well, just go out there and have a good match and, and, and let, let the boss uh, see what you can do. And I just remember thinking, like, see what I can do. I mean, it's been two years or whatever, one year, year and a half. Like, what are you talking about? Like, this, like, listen, I'm never a politicker. If you tell me to lose nine times out of ten, I don't have a problem. But one time out of ten, I was like, this, there's no way. It makes no sense. I need to find out the reason for this, and I want to know if Eric even knows. So Eric was at Betty Boops, and I, I went and asked him, 
uh, later on, which is still funny to think. Can you imagine like Vince McMahon showing up at Betty Boop's to drink with all the boys? Like, no. It, it's once again the kind of the difference between Eric and Vince is that Vince was he's this very intimidating kind of uh, a general five star general that you need to go through five levels of security to get to. And Eric was hanging out with the guys, you know, in a leather jacket and jeans with his hat on backwards. So that's when I went up to him and I said, listen, like, why am I losing to Gato tomorrow? He goes, what? That's not what I wanted. And I said, well, that's what they just told me. He goes, no, it's ridiculous. He said, you're winning. Why would I, why? I remember he's almost kind of, you know, Eric is kind of like arrogant. Like, why would I tell them to put Gato over on you? He's not even under contract here. And I was like, I know. That's why I came to ask you. So just that whole thing. And then you start thinking, like, who is... Who is sabotaging this? Why Why are they, you know, that's providing Eric said, I want Jericho to go over. Maybe he just made up the card. And they just they just decided. But why would anybody choose to put Gato over on me? Whoever's in the booking committee. And that's when I started thinking, like, maybe there's a little bit of a, not a fix, but somebody doesn't like me there. Maybe it's Sullivan or, or maybe it was Sullivan because I know Terry was kind of responsible for, you know, the Terry Taylor push that Scott Hall talked about. So. Something was going on there that 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 uh, was not what Eric wanted. Let me ask you a little bit about you know following up on your Eric Bischoff comment there because it sort of feels like you're shitting on him a little when you say you know he's out drinking with the boys and we've all read about the stories of Vince drinking with the boys and even taking guys finishers in yeah. the bar yeah, yeah, yeah. power slam from Bulldog or whatever. But it sort of feels like you know even there you've got a little bit of disdain in your voice for Bischoff. Where does that come from? Well, I think just. You know, and I, I, Eric and I are actually, you know, we're, we're friends now. We've had a lot of great conversations. We've had a lot of fun and, and even did a couple shows together and that sort of thing. But at the time, when I think of WCW, I didn't really like Eric. I didn't really, I didn't really get along with him, maybe. There's a lot of, like, there was a lot of, the WCW had a real kind of black cloud over it um, to where most of the guys that were there weren't as cool as they were when they were in WWE. Like, Eric in WWE was a different guy. Scott Steiner, different. Booker T, different. Big Show, different. Diamond Dallas Page, different. In that world, in that environment, it was very toxic, and a lot of guys were kind of jerks. So I shouldn't say I don't respect Bischoff, because I do, but I just didn't. You know, I remember when he, when he had the thing with, uh, I think he was working with Larry Zabisco, where he, where he karate kicked him. You know, he was, it was like a Bischoff versus Zabisco match. Is that, did that happen? Was there a Bischoff versus Abisco like karate match or something along those yeah, lines? Yeah, that's right. Starcade. Okay, so in Starcade in Baltimore, I remember after that, Eric was in the bar, standing there like the Fonz, as everybody was lined up to tell him how great he did. And I remember just me and it was me and Finley, I think it was, just looking. Go look at this, look at this, and Mark over here just standing there like the match was not good. I remember he had like a a steel toe in his boot or something when he went for the kick. The steel toe like flew out into the crowd and stuff like that, you know. And just have him standing there in the bar afterwards with everybody kind of going up to him, it just didn't seem what, 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 a, what a leader should be, you know? And I wasn't even too sure. Like, when I got to WWE and saw how things were with Vince, like, I couldn't believe Like, the buck stops with Vince. That's the way it is. You don't like it, you leave. In WCW, I didn't know if Eric was the boss, if Hogan was the boss, if Hall and Nash was the boss, if Harvey Schiller was the boss, if Sullivan was the boss. There were so many rooms and, 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 and you know, chains of command you didn't really know where to go and just something like you know gato's going over on you well no he's not that's not what i wanted well then why why would they even do that why would they try and pull that on you i just felt like he didn't really have control of what was going on and that's why i enjoy listening to 83 weeks to hear how much pressure he was he was under from everything else that was that was kind of taking the, the ball away from him and putting a lot of power 
in the hands of these other guys that were maybe abusing it and not using it to what Eric wanted, you know? Well, I, I disagree with your assessment of his leadership style because in a sales organization, which is what I do for a living, you know, podcasting is my hobby. I, I'm a right. mortgage guy. I, I like to think of no one as working for me. I, I like to think of myself as working with them. So Bischoff sort of hanging out with the boys and trying to get to know them on a personal level and trying to become one of them uh, doesn't necessarily mean to me that he's not a good leader. It just means his leadership style may be a little differently in that, you know, I don't want any employee that I have to say that they work for me. I would much rather work with them. And I never introduce anyone as saying, oh, this guy works for me. To me, that's dismissive. I instead say, oh, we work together. Does that make sense? It does make sense, Conrad, but this is the wrestling business. You know, filled with gypsies, tramps, and thieves, and cutthroats and backstabbers, you need a boss. And that's why WWE still exists to this day and why they just signed a deal for $2 billion and WCW's been gone for 15 years because Vince is the boss. You work for him. And like I said, I mean, you know where the buck stops and not, n- nobody, not Undertaker, not, you know, Triple H, not Shawn Michaels in his in his heyday of being just a terror or even Hall and Nash or any of those guys. If, if, if Vince didn't doesn't want you to do it, you're done. You don't do it. You got Hall and Nash doing cannonballs uh, from the ring into the pool at uh, at uh, uh, what's that place called that we used to do the spring break show? La Vila. La Vila. That's not in the script. They're taking the piss. They're they're doing cannibals in the water rather than doing what they're supposed to do. You you've lost control of of, of the inmates, and you you can't do that in the wrestling business because guys, you give guys an inch, they'll take ten miles. You know what I mean? Uh, so I, I I just I just remember seeing Bischoff in the bar, like I said, with, with all the people gathered around. I just felt like. You know, as the leader of the company, I didn't think that that you know hanging around in the bar and having you know Johnny Fairplay slap you on the back is something that should be worthy because it was everybody going up to him and just telling him. So I don't know, like I said, maybe I just had a bad attitude because I wasn't happy with what I was doing there. Um, when I think of WCW overall, I'm very glad that I went there. It was a it was a great experience. The the, the good experience much much outweighs the bad, and I learned a lot. I wouldn't change it for anything. But when I was there. It really did drain a lot of my love for the business, as it did to Chris, as it did to Eddie. I mean, those guys walked out saying, I don't care if I... I remember talking to Eddie, and this is Eddie Guerrero, who grew up in the business, loved the business, everything was about the business. And Benoit, too. Benoit never had a job. Do you know that? He never had a job. His only job was wrestling. That's the only thing that anybody ever gave him a paycheck for. He never worked in a supermarket. He never worked at a McDonald's or any of that stuff. And when those guys were saying, I would rather quit the business and go work at McDonald's than spend another day in WCW, that shows you what the atmosphere was like there. Do you think as far as you know, your comment about in wrestling you need a boss, isn't that fundamentally the difference between Vince McMahon and almost everyone else? You know, Eric is not playing with his own money, so to speak. When Vince McMahon is negotiating with someone, it's his money. And Bischoff at that time is a salaried employee of Turner. And so fundamentally, he probably feels, even though he is in charge of everyone, so to speak, it's not really his business. Yeah. With Vince McMahon, it is his business. Isn't that really the difference? Yeah, I, I can see that. You know, absolutely. And, and that's, once again, why I really enjoy listening to 83 Weeks. I, I like uh, something to wrestle with, too, but I wasn't there the time frame that you're talking about. Like, I was there for a few years when Bruce was, but you're talking about all the 80s, 90s stuff. For me, the 83 weeks, that's my life. I lived all that stuff. So to hear what Eric is talking about, how he had budgets and all this other stuff, but, but once again, hey, if the company goes under or if we go over budget, it's not, you know, it doesn't mean I can't, you know, afford my place in Montana uh, or wherever it was that he, that he was living. 
Whereas Vince, you know, this is if if it goes under, he can't afford his place in Stanford. You know, he's got to go get an apartment in Hell's Kitchen or whatever. And not that that would ever happen, but it's a whole different world. And it's the same reason why, you know, um, I've I've heard about it on your show. I always heard about it over the years that Hall and Nash had the favored nation clause, which meant you know if someone comes in that makes more money, they made more money too. Vince would never sign a fair nation of, of, no. of never ever ever ever. You know, every right. deal is, is based on the guy. Uh, Eric didn't have a problem. As long as his bosses went okay, what does he care? And I think that's where right. the ATM Eric thing came from. And I don't think it's an insult as much as he wasn't playing with his own money. Yes, he had budgets, but if he needed to bring in a Hogan, he would go to Harvey Schiller or to Ted Turner and say, I need $5 million to bring in Hogan. They'd probably have a meeting about it, bring it back, go, oh, there you go, there's your $5 million. Great, done, you know? Well, let's uh, let's switch gears and let's talk about when things really change for you. Allegedly, you do a pretty controversial web interview, and Eric finds out about it and responds and says, "There's a lot of truth in what you're saying," and gives you the good news. You're finally going to be a bad guy. You're going to turn heel in December of '97, and you switch up a lot of things. First of all, you do the uh, the petulant child, you know, after you lose a match, and you even rip Dave Penzer's jacket. You switch up your finisher. And then eventually, after you beat Mysterio for the title that sold out and you attack him, you, di- you change everything, your music, your gear, your hair. And this is when most of us listening really became a, a huge Chris Jericho fan. That's when you started to really innovate with the merchandise and the Jericho-holics and the Monday Night Jericho. Carry us through the good news of you're finally going to be a bad guy and how you came up with all this stuff that we remember so well all these years later. Well, and one thing I want to say too is, is, is you know, you said that I was shitting on Bishop, but I will, like, like I said, pros and cons. I actually did go meet with him um, at one point. I can't remember the time frame of it. It might have been when I was still a babyface, just kind of spinning my wheels, or it might have been just when I turned heel. But it was around the, around that time, and I, I wanted to renegotiate my deal. You know, I was making one sixty five, but. What I didn't know is I was also on the road for twenty two days a month. It was it would be ten days on. Uh, three days off, four days on, three days off. So that's your that's your month right there. And the road expenses were crazy. We used to drive six in a van. You know, I remember it was me, Dave Penzer, Benoit, Chavo, Dean, you know, and sometimes Arn would ride with us, and you'd have two guys in a room, sometimes three guys in a room. Like, I would never even consider that now. But at the time, it was very, you know, it was a lot of money that you were spending. So that 165 was gone pretty fast. So... He did give me a renegotiation. He went to, he changed it from one sixty. It must have been the first year. He changed one sixty five first year, then two hundred, then two twenty five third year. That was and that was you know out of, out of you know out of his generosity or if you want to use the ATM Eric thing. But he didn't once again didn't have to do that. He obviously felt there was value in me and felt I deserved to get a little bit of a bump, even though contractually he didn't have to do shit. Okay, right. So. um I remember I showed up one day and uh, and Terry Taylor said the proverbial, you know, how are you feeling today? It's a good day for you. I said, why? And he said, because we're going to stick a rocket up your ass. It's one of those typical things. But Terry was very instrumental in making me, you know, that Chris Jericho. Because it was his idea that, you know, tonight you're going to lose your match and you're going to have the temper tantrum. You're going to rip up the, the jacket. Uh, it was his idea to do a submission for a finish. Because at the time, I think I was using the, the lion salt uh, and before right. and before that was just using like random like dropkick from the top or whatever didn't really have a succinct finish. He wanted me to use an armbar, and I remember uh, I'd worked with Chris in Japan just recently, and he, he that's where I got the the line tamer from was from Benoit. He did that very stiff 
Boston Crab where, where his knee would be on the back of your head and you'd almost be bending back like crazily. And that's I suggested that and Terry allowed me to do it. Um, which is a funny story because after a couple months of using it, he was like, yeah, you're going to use that, that shitty submission of yours. I said, well, it actually does hurt. He goes, no, it doesn't. I said, well, actually, it does. He goes, put it on me right now. I'm like, are you sure? He's put it on me right now in front of everybody in the locker room. And this is the booker, my boss, essentially. But I put it on. I cinched that f***er in, man. He was tapping. And he was screaming. And after he's like, what'd you do? Why are you so stiff? Why are you so hard? I'm like, what am I supposed to do? If I don't lay it in there, you're going to laugh at me. And if I if I you know if I do lay in, you're mad at me. But I remember him just like being so angry that I that I uh, shot on him, quote unquote, in the dressing room. But that's where I got that from. And then after that, it just became organic because once the chains were off, that's the real Chris Jericho. You know, I just I'll, I'll do anything to to get a reaction. I'll try anything. You know, the Gene Simmons top knot in the hair just because it was obnoxious. Uh, you know, uh, all the, all those promos that you see before the match was me once again asking Eric. Can I do a promo before the match? And he'd always say, yes, but keep it short. And so I would know I have time to do 10, 15 seconds. And that's when I came up with, you know, the Paragon of Virtue and Never Ever Again. And uh, 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 not Raw's Jericho, Monday Night Jericho. And um, I was doing like songs at the time, like Mbop and Dexy's Midnight Runners. And I Want You to Want Me and Unta Glieben, Glauten Globen. Like anything like that that I could think of just to get a little bit of a, like I said, I learned in WCW, if they give you three minutes of TV time, You've got three whole minutes to, to build your character. And no, that's, that's my time to do whatever I want, right? So he always let me do a promo. And, and, and he probably doesn't even remember that. But I said, every night I'd be, I would say, can I do a promo? Yes, keep it short. And that's kind of all that, all that organically started. And then I finally, after a year and a half or two years or whatever it was, had a character, had direction, and finally had the charisma that I always had, knowing I could have done this right off the bat as a heel, which then turns you into a babyface. It, it was, it was, the, it was finally the chance to do that, and I'd been waiting, and I was ready. It's the same character I did in Calgary, um, you know, years before. Just this obnoxious, you know, petulant pansy coward. Um, but it worked, and it was funny, and people started getting behind it, and then suddenly Chris Jericho was one of the highlights of of Nitro. Well, and along the way, you uh, managed to unmask Juventud Guerrera at Super Brawl Eight, which was a pretty controversial deal at the time. Uh, obviously, you understood the meaning of the mask and how important that was in Mexican culture, especially for a guy like Juventud. Uh, carry me through, you know, briefly how that all came to be, and and if you were for that, it feels like something that the wrestling fan in you would have probably poo-pooed. Well, it's interesting, you know. Like I, I've always been one of the type of guys that, like, I just I go like whatever the direction of the company is, I can't change it. You know, those guys that go, I, you know. Right. Being in the PG-13 WWE, I can't exist in that world. I'm like, well, you can and you will because that's the way it is. If that's what Vince wants, then do it. So when Eric went through this stage of wanting to take everybody's masks off, you know, the fact that he wanted me to take Hoovy's mask, I thought that's, you know, that's a pretty big deal. So I wasn't looking at it like, hey, 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 that's not cool. To me, I was like, you know, that's like winning a title to me. And, and at this point in time, I was damn well going to take it and do it to the best of my abilities to get him over, right? Once again, I was bitching earlier about the NWO being cool heels. It didn't, I mean, I was saying a lot of stuff that I, it was lucky that I was obnoxious and had heat. But, you know, when I'm calling Hoovy quasi juice and, you know, saying I killed Hoovy, which when I killed Kenny was the big catchphrase from South Park. I mean, that's funny. You're laughing right now. It's funny stuff. Sure. I'm completely burying my baby face. But, right. you know, I just wanted to, to, to get, get over. And, um, 
that that match actually uh, is one of my favorite, probably top five matches. The one I had in the Cow Palace with Hooven to to, to unmask him. Um, but it was very, very funny stuff. You know, I remember being on the ground selling, like, but I'm faking, and I'm looking at the camera, like, looking around, like, is anyone watching me? And then faking, selling again, and is anyone looking at me? Like, you watch it, and you're laughing, and, and there's really nothing to hate about this guy um, unless you just don't like obnoxious people, but this is wrestling, so you love obnoxious people. That's what we want from characters. But if you see, when I first started doing it, there was a lot of heat, and that's what always happens when there's a new heel. You get a lot of heat right away, and then that heat turns to, to cheers very quickly because people are enjoying your character. Once again, you go from being the teenager in the Freddy Krueger movie to being Freddy Krueger. Feared and hated at first and then revered and loved uh, not too long afterwards. And that's where that all started. Well, and you really kicked it up a notch with Malenko. You beat him at Uncensored and then the feud begins. You guys are off to the races. You're doing promos about his deceased father you're doing the famous interview that everybody still talks about where you're listing all the holes with armbar as every other one, mispronouncing his name and the framed picture promo. So much of this we all remember. Yeah. Did you yeah. have to run any of that sort of up the flagpole or did they just say, Chris, you've got X number of minutes, go get it done? Yeah, and that's the crazy thing, Conrad, is that you know, I think about how WWE works and how you know Vince knows and approves everything. There was none of that there. Um, it was basically what you just said. Here's, here's, here's the idea. And Dean... Uh, had an idea. I think he either had had a baby or he was just burned out, and he really did take four months off. And it was my job in that interim to keep the feud going. And that's when I really started like feeling myself to like, I'm keeping this feud one of the top feuds in the company, and the guy that I'm working with isn't even here. You know what I mean? So that really showed a lot of, of um, I guess, talent or fearlessness on my part. Um, and I remember, for example, you're talking about the the promo with the framed picture, I had to get that picture made myself. I had to find an easel and I had to figure out a way to transport it because <laughs> yeah, true story. Th- they wouldn't do it for me. They said, well, we can't, we can't transport it. Cause I had that picture with me for a while. So I would have to buy a new frame in every city and then roll the picture up and put it in the overhead bin. So it wouldn't get destroyed in my bag. And same thing with the easel. I had to carry I had that easel with me at all times going through the airport in my carry-on or just carrying it in my hand because I had to put it in, in, the, in the overhead bin because it wouldn't fit in my bag. It was too long. Um, you know, once again, stuff that people don't realize, uh, the stuff that we have to go through. And the Man of a Thousand and Four Holds promo, that was Disco Inferno's idea. Give him credit where credit is due. It was not Eric's. It was Disco's. And another thing that was really funny around this time frame is I remember I did a thing where um, I was petitioning Ted Turner himself to, I think it's when we were doing the whole conspiracy theory thing. That's right. Um, and remind me, conspiracy theory, I got a story about that too. Uh, Ted Turner, so, so I was supposed to open a FedEx and read this letter from Ted Turner. And I said to Eric, do you want me to write it? He goes, no, I want to write it. And I was like, okay. And so all day long, you get to TV at about 2 and it doesn't start till 8 or 9, I would kept asking, did you write that letter? No, I'll write it in a bit. No, I'll write it in a bit. No, I'll write it in a bit. Finally, 10 minutes before, he goes, I don't have time. You write it. And I'm like, like, dude, you could have told me this hours ago. So I had to write that letter in 10 minutes. And it actually is a really well-written letter if you go back and watch that promo. I just watched it recently. Um, so you know, that was just another example of Eric being too busy to worry about what I was doing and, and really not caring. Just write it yourself. I could have wrote whatever I wanted. And there was another time when we were in Buffalo and my dad came to the ring when I was bitching and complaining to, to, to put me in my place and tell me that how much of an embarrassment I was to the family. 
And my dad told me after the fact that he heard Bischoff, or Bischoff said, like, you know, Ted Irvin's got a promo. He goes, oh, he won't remember it. He's going to bomb. And my dad was like, I heard him say that. And my dad, dude, he did, you know, he did commentary for years for hockey, you know, after show, you know, hot stove lounge, three-hour post shows. My dad knows how to talk, and he knows how to write. And he wrote this wicked promo, and he did this great promo, and just killed it. And after Bishop, I was like, that oh, was a great job, Ted. And Ted was like, yeah, well, you said I couldn't do it. I never said that. And he's like, yeah, sure, I heard you say it. Um, and my dad also got stiffed of his, from his payoff, too. They still owe him 500 bucks, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but there's all, oh all these stories. Like, there's another one, Conrad, where uh, I was working with Chavo so many times, over and over and over and over again. And I, I was beating him every night. Once again, I'm the heel, he's the baby face. I'm like, Terry, why why you put me with Chavo all the time and, and have him win all the time? Or have me win all the time? Like, does nothing for him, and people just know. And he goes, well, okay, well, this time let's do something different. Beat him, and then break Pepe in two. Uh, Pepe was his, his, his wooden horse that he was using because he was kind of doing like a crazy gimmick. So he's riding around the ring with his wooden horse. And so now, okay, so just beat him and break his gimmick. You know, break his horse. Like, just really bury the guy. So we were like, you know what? I said, let's, let's do this. So we are in Fargo, and we drove to Toys R Us, and we bought an aluminum baseball bat and a giant horse head. Okay? I put the giant horse head on the aluminum baseball bat, and then I took it to the ring and stuck it under the ring. We did the match. I break Pepe. Chavo goes under the ring, grabs the baseball bat, who I told uh, Siobhan or whatever, that's Jose, Pepe's older brother, hit me in the back with it. And then rode around the, the ring on, on, on Jose, the the, the, the <laughs> Now, nobody knew we were doing this, Conrad. Can you imagine if no. I did this in WWE and just showed up and pulled a, a, a baseball bat with a horse head on it out of the, under the ring? No control whatsoever. And nobody really watching. Nobody said a word. I don't think anybody was watching the match. There's no gorilla position in WCW. There was just a curtain, and you'd walk out, and about 20, feet, 20 meters down the hall... Jody Hamilton would be sitting at a table with a microphone timing the show. So that's it. When you come out of the curtain, there's nobody there. It's not like in WWE where they have the gorilla position. Vince is there. Your agent is there. You know, the timekeeper's there. All the people are gathered around. Nothing. So you just go and do whatever you wanted. And if no one said anything, you'd go do it again. Something else you uh, covered in your book that I was really fascinated to get Eric's take on in 83 weeks is the idea that you turned down the opportunity to join the NWO. I mean, they're super hot here making a ton of merch money and you have the opportunity to come in and have the giant as your bodyguard and he turned it down. I mean, a year prior, you probably wouldn't have done that, but here you've got so much momentum. You'd be crazy to take the, uh, take that and, and sort of just shift all the momentum underneath the NWO umbrella, right? It's a famous story um, from a few years prior to when Pillman was getting very hot doing his character, the, the loose cannon and all that sort of thing before he, before he jumped to WWE and, Hogan saw how hot he was and wanted to put him in this multi-person match where it was going to be Hogan and, I think, Savage against seven or eight guys. And he wanted Pillman in that match so he could beat him, basically, and, and you know, shut down the heat or whatever it was. And I remember thinking that because I was approached, uh, and it's like, you'll be in the NWO, but it was the NWO at the time, you got to remember, had Michael Wall Street in it, had Virgil in it, had Brian Adams in it, had, you know, all these just random guys, uh, you know, Brutus Beefcake, and to be in the NWO was not even cool anymore. You were just another guy. And right. I remember thinking, like, this is actually funny. I mean, Conan specifically told me he would always stand right behind Bischoff on the promos because he knew he'd be on TV. Because you'd have 18 guys in the ring, and you, all you would see is Bischoff, 
Paul and Nash, and then Conan behind him. Because he knew if he stood there, he'd always get on camera. None of the other guys did. And I just remember thinking, I don't want to, I remember telling him, like, uh, and Eric said I didn't have creative control, and I didn't. But I remember, him, I remember telling him, like, I'm, I'm not, I don't play well with others when it comes to this sort of stuff. Like, I, there's no reason for me to the NWO. It, 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 you guys don't need me. I remember I played it off, like, you don't need me in the NWO. You guys are the top thing. And, you know, meanwhile, I'm thinking to myself, and I sure as hell don't need you guys. I just let me keep doing what I'm doing and be my own guy. And let me just, you know, if you guys are working up the left, right, and center, let me come up on the side. I can be kind of a, you know, a relief pitcher if you need me. But if you put me in there with everybody else, I lose my individuality, which is why this character is getting over. And I remember Eric saying, okay, fine, don't do it then. The match that night was me beating Stevie Ray for the television title. And it was going to be Giant coming down to choke slam Stevie Ray. I get the pin, and that helps me like kind of go off. I don't know if Giant was supposed to be my bodyguard, but I was, that was kind of the way that I was joining the NWO. And when Eric said, fine, don't do it, I don't care, or whatever he said, I said, what should you do with the finish for tonight? He said, don't worry about it. We'll just do it, and we'll, we'll figure it out later. So if you watch that match, you'll see me versus Stevie Ray, and then here comes the Giant randomly choke slams him. I cover Stevie Ray, and then the Giant and I never seen together again. Which is so ridiculous, but that's kind of just the way it was there, you know. And, and one more thing before I retort to that: I, uh, when you talked about the other stuff, there's a famous uh, vignette that I did where I went to uh, the White House in Washington as the conspiracy victim. Um, that was all created by me and the camera team because I was told I had to show up early for vignettes on Monday in Nitro in Washington D.C. And when I got there, the camera crew was there, and I remember asking them, "So what are we doing?" And they said, well, we were waiting for you to come tell us what we're doing. I go, what do you mean? They, said, they go, what do you mean? I said, you don't know what we're supposed to do? And they said, no, you don't know what we're supposed to do? I said, no. So I'm like, okay. Um, they said, well, you're supposed to go out in the streets and get some film. So that's when I came up with the whole thing of the conspiracy theory and standing in the middle of the road with the sign. and go, like We made that up all on the fly with no producer, no director, no script. The fact it turned out as good as it did is insane. When you think about that, the fact that they, we shot it in the morning, they edited it, and it came out as good as it did with no direction whatsoever. So in a sense, it's almost I, like being the elite now, is it not? Completely. I mean, it was just really renegade. Yeah. If, if being the elite knew, you know, if, 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 if it's, it's like being the, being the elite, except for being, an elite, being the elite knows what they're doing, that they're in charge. It's their storyline, their idea. They go out and shoot it. I showed up and had to turn into being the elite but not having any idea what we were supposed to do. And when we, when we finished up, I'm like, I hope that's good. I mean, I hope we got something out of it. I remember the guy going, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll edit it. It'll be great. But they might hate this. I mean, I might show this to Bischoff or, or whoever, Sullivan or, or Terry, and they might go, this is the worst piece of shit we've ever seen. I don't know because we had no direction whatsoever, and I wasn't in control. I didn't have creative control, so I couldn't just hand it and go, show this. So, you know, there was a lot of this type of, uh, and it really did help me learn, once again, how to take advantage of the opportunities uh, and knowing, listen, you got two hours to come up with a a four-minute vignette. You better go find something, man, Uh, because if not, you know, you're going to lose your opportunity. Remember, there's a great story after Clarence Clemens died, uh, uh, the Bruce Springsteen band, that, that his nephew, Jake Clemens, replaced him. And Springsteen went up to him one time during one of the shows and said, do a solo. And the kid kind of froze and didn't know what to do and didn't really do a solo. And afterwards, Springsteen said, listen, next time I ask you to do a solo, do it, or else I'm not going to ask you to do any more solos. In other words, get the job done and get it out there. I don't care. Make it good. And that's what we had to do in WCW. And that's, I really latched onto that. So to get these opportunities, 
even though there was really no direction, I was taking I was I was taking it and making it the best I possibly could. Well, you certainly did with Ralphus, who is maybe one of the more legendary figures from your run here in WCW. And there was a hilarious bit in your book that Eric thought was ridiculous. And, and obviously the conversation probably never included Eric. But allegedly, Ralphus wanted a contract? What can you tell us about Ralphus wanting a downside guarantee, which is just phenomenal? Well, here's the thing with Ralphus. So I was doing a thing, one, and I'm sure you're going to talk about this too, the Goldberg thing. I showed up one day for a pay-per-view and I'm like, Terry, am I even on this show? He goes, yeah. I go, who am I working? He's working Goldberg. I'm like, oh, really? Like, I'm the TV champion. He goes, no, no, it's a, it's a mini Goldberg. And I was like, oh, okay. And it's kind of like this small kind of dwarfish Goldberg guy. <laughs> so, I, you know, I kick the shit out of him. I pin him, one, two, three, Jericho, one, Goldberg, nothing. Everyone's laughing, right? Uh, and then Goldberg, the next day, I see him in the airport. And he goes, I hope it was worth it, Jericho. I said, what? He goes, I hope it was worth it. What are you talking about? This comedy shit. I heard all about it. I'm like, he goes, I hope it's worth it. I was like, dude, I didn't book it, you know, and like, whatever. Like, who, who cares? Like, what do you care? It's got nothing, you know, whatever. So he was very angry from the start about this. But Terry wanted to continue it, continue like this Jericho Goldberg thing non-existently. And, and I don't know if he even had a payoff in mind. But so the next time I was supposed to do something, um, I thought, well, Goldberg always walks out with this big security detail, which I always found kind of confusing. If he's so tough, why does he need security? But anyways... I was like, well, I could get a bunch of these power plant guys because there's all these power, like guys that were training in the WCW power plant, the, the training school. They were just massive, just huge guys. And I thought, yeah, I could get those guys. But there was this truck driver guy that I would see from time to time, and he had no teeth in the center and giant fangs that protruded out the side like pieces of candy corn and pretty much the same color. And he had this big, goofy smile, and uh, I thought, I can get that guy. That'd be cool. So I walked up to him, and I just said, hey, man, because he would always be super friendly. How you doing? Hey, how's, how's it going? And I just went up to him. I said, hey, man, like, uh, you want to come to the ring with me? He's like, sure. What do you want me to do? I said, well, I want you to wear this half-cut T-shirt. Uh, and I'd written Jericho Personal Security. I said, put this on, you know. And, and any, anybody, if anybody tries to touch me, point at them and say, don't do it. Um, his version of that was going, hey. He'd wag his finger like a, like a teacher telling you, no, 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 no. Kind of with this half-smile. And that's where it all started. And lo and behold, the guy started getting over because he's super entertaining just by being goofy. And, um, you know, he, he, he started just showing up at, at house shows to where I'd be like, what are you doing here? He's like, ah, we're, we're, I just drove the lighting truck to, to Nitro and um, uh, I came to the house show. I'm like, the house show, like, is, we're, in, we're in Dayton and TV's in Detroit four hours away. You just drove here? He's like, well, in case I was needed. So I'd be like, okay. <laughs> so he'd come to the ring with me, and I'd go. I had really big heat at the time, and I'd stand on the second rope, and I'd people be booing me, but I hear these big cheers from behind, and I'd go turn around, and Ralphus is also standing on the second rope, basking in the glory of the cheers. And I'd be like, what are you doing? Like, don't you don't want people to cheer you? Like, we don't like these people. He's like, why? They're nice people. I'm like, no, they're not nice people. They're, we don't like the fans here. But they're fans. They like me. He didn't understand that we're supposed to be bad guys, right? Uh, and, and then and then they started wanting him to get involved in matches. And I, said, I remember telling Solon, he can't do it. He doesn't get it. He doesn't know anything about this world. Oh, it's how hard can it be? He'll, he'll hold Hugh Morris's leg when Hugh goes to do a moonsault. And you'll, you know, you'll be, that will help you win the match or whatever. And Hugh would go for the moonsault. There's no Ralphus. He's in the front row looking at some chicks in the front row. So whatever happens, Hugh has to miss the moonsault or has to give me the moonsault. And afterwards, I'm like, what were you doing? And he's got this bouquet of roses. And he said, oh, they, the girls gave me roses. I'm like, oh, really? 
Oh, what nice girls. Let me see the roses. Oh, they smell nice. Don't they look nice? And then I just whacked him over the head and destroyed the roses by beating him with it. Go, you stupid idiot. Pay attention. So anyways, over the course of time, whenever Ralphus would come out, I finally went to Craig Leathers, who was one of the directors on the show, and I said, can we, can we give Ralphus something for, you know, for doing these shows, you know, 500 bucks a night? He said, yeah, no problem. Sure, sure. And um, at one point, I remember, I mean, remember Dean was like, look at Ralphus. I was putting baby oil on my arm, and Ralphus was putting baby oil on his arm. And then he, I was wetting my hair, and he was wetting his hair. He didn't have any fucking hair, but he was wetting it. And uh, I remember one time, he's like, you know, I, I need to get a contract. I need, I need to go talk to, uh, talk to these people about getting a contract. And I'm like, well, you know, you know, you, uh, you know, you're making 500 bucks a night or whatever it is. And I remember, like, I remember actually thinking, though, you know what? The guy probably does deserve a contract. He's more over than 90% of the show, and you could do more with him. The funny thing is, though, is that when I was about to go to work for Vince... For about a two-day period, I thought it would be cool if, if Ralphus came with me. I don't know what I was thinking, but I thought, can you imagine if Jericho and Ralphus show up? You know, like, how crazy would that be? And I remember telling him, like, you know, I'm thinking about going to WWE. Would you want to go? And he's like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah we, can, we can do some real good stuff there. Like, you know, he's super into it. And then I remember about a week later after I changed my mind, he comes up to me and goes, he goes, so when are we going to New York? And, like, oh, that, <laughs> that's, an in, that's an inside wrestling term. Like, New York? was always Vince, and Atlanta right. was WCW. I never told him the word New York. I never once ever said New York, but somehow through the biz, he had found out that that, that meant so. He's like, are we going to go to New York soon? Like, what do you know about New York? Get out of here. So, um, yeah, so the bottom line was I was trying to find him. I, I guess I got a tweet from somebody recently that said, uh, I know John Riker. That's Ralphus. I know where he is. And I was like, really? Like, do you have his email? I'd love to talk to him. So send him an email. Hey, man, Ralphus, it's me, Jericho, and... How are you? And uh, would you like to do my podcast and reconnect and have some fun? And he, he emailed back. Goes, is this the real Chris Jericho? I said, Yeah, 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 man. Here's my number. Give me a text or give me a call. Never heard back from him again. I got big league by Ralphus. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, what a fun life you've had. Big league by Ralphus. Big league by Ralphus. But he did. He did want a contract, and he did want to come with me to New York. The New York thing is the line of the show. Let's yeah. talk about when it all comes to an end. Eventually, as you touched on, Goldberg is pretty pissed off with this, and you've. Sort of created your own little angle here that just keeps building steam. And then eventually Eric says there was never an angle and it ends tonight. And that leads to a meeting with Eric Bischoff, Bill Goldberg, and Hulk Hogan is in the room when you come in. And allegedly Bischoff said something like, we've accommodated you long enough. And Bill pipes in that he's, quote, sick of doing this comedy shit. And it feels like when you read your book that this is sort of the straw that broke the camel's back for you because... What they want to do and what your vision for this was are two totally different things. When you heard Eric discuss it on 83 Weeks, do you sort of see his side of things when he says what you wanted to do, a real match, Goldberg wasn't capable of delivering. So there was no real way to pay it off. Your response? Well, it was interesting to hear that, and and it would have been nice to have heard that at the time. Uh, and just to confuse, I did not want to have a real match with Goldberg. What I wanted to do was I had seen a squash match years earlier on Saturday night's main event uh, of, the, of the Legion of Doom versus Pat Tanaka and Paul Diamond. It's one of the greatest squash matches you'll ever see. It's, it's like a five-star squash because Tanaka was so good. and was just bumping the hell everywhere. It was amazing. And that's what I wanted to do. Is all I wanted to do was get a pay-per-view match out of it because I thought, listen, we've started to build this. People are into it, and I could tell because people. Jimmy Hart taught me something. He said, "You can't um, make people write signs. 
they're going to write the signs they want to write, and that that's what really gets over is, is what you see in the crowd. And I saw so many Jericho four Goldberg zero shirts everywhere, or shirts or uh, signs, I should say, because at that point in time there was a countout that I won by, and a couple other you know bullshit things that we never even actually even uh, faced each other. I went to a mall in Greenberg, South Carolina, to a T-shirt store, and got a shirt that said Jericho with a dash. And then got a bunch of numbers, four, five, six, whatever. And then I got Goldberg Zero. And I was going to take those numbers and I would stick them on every week to wherever it was. So I'd have a shirt every week, Jericho 3, Goldberg Zero. Jericho 4, Goldberg Zero, et cetera, et cetera. And what I wanted for the payoff was, because they started getting hip to it, and, and then they, they wanted me to lose to Goldberg a couple times on Nitro. And I remember um, saying, like, why, why, like, why do we build this for three or four weeks and then just going to have me lose, like, in a minute to Goldberg on Nitro? Like, We've got something here. People are into it. You can see by the, the, the crowd and by what they're chanting and what they're doing, they, they want to see Goldberg kill me. Why don't we make him pay for it? That was my point. Why don't we make him pay for it rather than just giving it to him for free on TV and that was great. Like, let's do a pay-per-view match. And I remember at one point, Eric was into it. He was even going to have Judge Judy on the show and he wanted to do something where like Goldberg would be beat up by somebody and I would come in and put my foot on him and, and pose and take a picture and then go to Judge Judy and say, here, here's my proof that I beat Goldberg. Look, my, my foot's on him. And Goldberg's like, absolutely not. So th- that was Eric's idea to do something with Judge Judy. So when it, it kept getting put in my face where it was like, you're just going to lose to him, it, it, like everybody else had in this streak, I was like, I put my foot down. Absolutely not. If this angle, this money-making angle, if you won't even go through with this, then I know I'm done. I've got, there's nothing else I can do here because this is an angle that fell into your hands. It's a legit match that people want to see. And I never, ever wanted to have a, a normal match. What I wanted to do was have Bill just kick the shit out of me and, like, like I said, do this great kind of squash match with all these cool little bumps and bruises and stuff. And at the end, I was going to be wearing, like, amateur wrestling shoes. And what I was... I remember I even had the whole finish. I was going to hit him with the belt. He was going to no-sell it. He was going to kick me, whatever. Give me a chance to kind of pull the heel out of my shoe. And then I was going to have him spear me so hard that, my sho- that he speared me out of my shoes. I was going to kick the shoe into like the 15th row or whatever. I've since done that in WWE. I think I did it with Swagger maybe or, or maybe with maybe I did it with Goldberg there. But I, I like literally all I want to do is have Goldberg spear me out of my shoes. That's the match. Um, so I never heard anything about Eric saying that Bill can't do this. And maybe he would have been so crazy that he wouldn't have, A, wanted to or wouldn't have been able to remember some of the spots that I had. But they were, all would have been for him. I had no desire to have Goldberg sell for me in any way, shape, or form. You know what I mean? So I just wanted, that was my plan, was to do that. So I did have the meeting. Uh, it was in Long Island. And I remember that it was, I, I, originally the week before it was in Phoenix. They wanted to do it. And I, I think I just hid, or I can't remember what I did. I, just, I weaseled out of it somehow. Then the next, and just the fact I was able to weasel out of it just shows you how ridiculous it is. When Chris Jericho can get out of doing a finish with Goldberg, like that would never happen, you know, in WWE, right? Right. So, so um, they wanted me to lose again. And I was like, no, absolutely not. And that's when I got called into the office with Bischoff and Goldberg and Hogan was in there too. And like, you know, what's your problem? Why don't you want to lose? And I said, I, I want to lose, but I want people to pay for it. I want to do this. And I remember looking at Hogan and saying, Hulk, this is, people want to pay to see this. I know, I know you understand the, the draw of this match and the, the draw of making money in the business. And I wasn't demeaning anybody else, but I said, like, can you see my point? I remember Hogan saying, well, what do, you, what do you suggest you do today? And I said, why don't we, I'll go to the ring. I remember it was my birthday, November 9th, 1998. I'll go to the ring. I'll do my promo uh, that I'm you know, challenging Goldberg again. And as I'm you know, talking about Goldberg, 
in the back. You see him show up. He sees me on TV. He trashes his dressing room. He comes to the ring. He spears me in the middle of the ra- in the middle of the aisle, which leads to the pay per view match next week, or whenever. Yeah, I think it was next week. We do the you know five, six, seven minute squash. Goldberg spears me out of my shoes. The end. And I remember Hogan saying, "We'll give it a try." And and Bischoff was into it, but Goldberg was really mad. Like you talked about, you know, I'm the guy that beat just beat Hogan for the title. I'm the guy that stands in the sparks in the middle of the fire. And I remember saying, you're the guy that's going to go down if I kick you in the nuts right now. And Bischoff going, okay, calm down now. Let's not get carried away. It's just like so ridiculous, right? So we go and do the spot, and you can go watch it. You know, it's, it's, it's online. And, and Goldberg, I remember I put on, I borrowed elbow pads from Billy Kidman because I remember thinking he's going he's gonna to kill me with his spear. And that was the idea. Right. I wanted him to spear me 20 feet down the aisle. And he did. He did. And then after he speared me, I said, pick me up and throw me into the aisle. Pick me up and throw me in the guardrail. And he did. You know, I was, it was all about selling for Bill. I wasn't stupid. I know he's the cash cow that's killing everybody. Of course he's going to kill Chris Jericho. I just wanted people to pay to see it. After we did this, the, 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 the bit, I came back to the dressing room. And you have to understand, back in those days, there was probably eight dressing rooms in an arena, and six of them were used for private dressing rooms. Savage had one. Hogan had one. Goldberg had one. NWO had one. And then be all the kind of the, like the low-level guys on the Titanic all hanging out in the same dressing room. You know, all the Irish guys that you see in the movie. Uh, all of us, like, you know, like a Cambodian refugee camp, just wherever you could find, like, three inches of space. And I remember sitting there afterwards and, and uh, changing, and I heard uh, that distinctive Hogan voice. Hey, brother, anyone know where Chris Jericho is? And uh, I was like, oh, no. Like, he's coming into our dressing room. He's coming into, like, the plebeians' dressing room with all the lowlifes. And I was like, hey, Hulk, what's up? And he said, hey, he came over in front of everybody, shook my hand, and said, you did a great job tonight. Because that, that was the right thing to do. It was a good piece of business, and, and congratulations for standing up for yourself and thinking of that because it was, it was right. And to have Hogan say that, I thought, that's really cool, man. That, that really gave me a, a, a really cool feeling to know that, that my, my instincts were right, you know? And then the caveat... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. You mentioned about the, the pay-per-view. You know, you really wanted to do it on a pay-per-view. That's not even from a financial self-interest, really, because... Your contract at the time, you didn't get necessarily pay-per-view points. This is just a, a matter of pride. You wanted it to be the main event on a big show, right? I didn't even want it to be the main event, Conrad. I didn't care if it was on first. I just wanted people to have to pay for it. And once again, you're, yeah, there's no pay-per-view bonuses for Chris Jericho at that time. I made my two hundred grand a year whether I was in the main event or whether I didn't even work. I mean, Lanny Poffo didn't work for a year and a half and made two fifty. So all I wanted was to show that I could be a money-making draw for WCW, you know, that I, that I could create this angle. And once again, I didn't come up with this idea. It was given to me, but I made it good, and I made it something that people wanted to see, and I wanted, you know, to, to, to get the credit for if this pay-per-view does good and, and you know, makes, makes some money or does a good buy rate or whatever, knowing that I was a part of it, to show you guys I can play with the big boys, and I got big right. boy ideas. You know, and Bischoff kept saying, you know, Chris saw himself in the... Well, of course I saw myself as a main eventer. If I didn't, why would I be even be in the business? Right. You know, and that was one problem that WCW had once in the glass ceiling of, of the quote-unquote cruiserweight, and I was out of it then. I was a TV champion, all this sort of stuff. But if you look, when Eddie Guerrero was the hottest guy in the company, he wasn't working with Sting. You know, look how hot I was. I wasn't... I could... You kidding me? Me and, me and Randy Savage with me as a heel? Are you kidding me? We would have torn the freaking house down. I would have done the same thing with him that I did with Shawn Michaels... You know, ten years later, reinvigorated his career, made him excited to have these matches that he could have. I could have done it. I could have done with Hogan. I worked with Hogan in two thousand and two for six months because he loved working with me. I could have worked with Sting. I could work with 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 uh, Luger. I worked with Goldberg three pay per views in WWE. I could have done all of that in WCW, but they wouldn't pull the trigger and give me the shot. 
And when they wouldn't do that angle in the pay-per-view, because as as we know, as you said, Goldberg uh, canceled because he was going hunting that weekend. He wasn't booked for the pay-per-view, so he just skipped out. And I worked with Bobby Duncan Jr. that pay-per-view, and that was the blow-off. That was the blow-off of the Goldberg angle. Bill and I never touched after that. Yeah, and it is pretty ridiculous to think about the idea that you do have an opportunity for that match on pay-per-view, but because the guy's got a hunting trip, it's not going to happen. It just showed it. As I mean, you said, yeah, it would and, never happen in WWF. And, and once again, if, if, if you're not going to follow through on this, knowing that people want to see it, then what chance do I have here? There's never going to be anything that I do after two months or three months or whatever because it was a long buildup. There's nothing I can do that's going to that's going to top this as far as a, a match that you know. And they might have been able to do more, but the, you, here it is, right here. And if if you're not going to take it now, then there's nothing. There's no way it's not going to happen for me. I always I always say that WCW was like the Indian caste system. If you know anything about about, about you know Indian society, if you're born poor. You stay poor. If you're born rich, you stay rich. If you're born middle class, you stay middle class. You never get out of out of the the level that you're at. And I felt like I was brought in as a cruiserweight. I was brought in as a two hundred thousand dollar guy. This is where I'm going to stay. You know, I'll, I'll never get get a bigger opportunity because when one was presented to them on a on a silver platter, they didn't take it. So as a result, I'm done here. And that's that that was the that was the day the, when I worked with Bobby Duncan Jr. on that pay per view. That was the day that Chris Jericho had checked out of WCW, and then it was time to get the hell out of there. You referenced in your book that, you know, the money, when, when we get to the bidding war, and I do want to talk about the secret meeting with Vince, but yep. first, you sort of talk about, you know, yeah, it hurts your feelings that um, Eric didn't really have your back here, and that's really w- sort of the final straw. Is that what you're referencing here, that had he sort of had your back here, maybe you could have seen yourself staying there, even though your long-term goal was to wind up in the WWF because that's what you grew up on yes. and that's what you were really a fan of. But I was always fascinated by the phrase, you know, Eric hurt my feelings because that's not something that you hear guys talk about. I mean, they say, oh, all that matters is the money and the miles. But for you to say, Eric hurt my feelings, I want you to expound on that. Well, he hurt my feelings because I knew I knew Eric. Eric is a very smart guy. I mean, you know, the, the whole, the fact that he was able to take that company um, you know, I told Don Callis the other day, I mean, you know, don't think that you can't make this huge when you're working with Impact because Bischoff did it, you know, one or two key acquisitions and suddenly you become hot and people people jump aboard. And, and that was what Eric did. And I just felt as a businessman, as a guy who understood how to make money in the, in the wrestling business, the fact that, that you're not going to do this match because of ego over business when the whole end result was for Goldberg to win, and once again, not to have a normal match. It wasn't going to be shine, heat, false finish, false finish. It was going to be a, a, killer, a killing, just an entertaining one like I had seen Pat Tanaka do with, with the Road Warriors. And you think Pat Tanaka in WWE against the Road Warriors, you think he got any offense in? No, but it was an awesome match. So, you know, I'm, I'm not harping on, on the match. It's the principle and the point of it, right? So when that happened, I knew that Bischoff didn't see it in me. And if he didn't see it, he told me once that, you know, you need to be on TV for 10 years to be a main eventer. That was something that he said. People need to be familiar with you before you can become a main eventer. And then meanwhile, Goldberg's been on TV for, you know, six months and he's super huge. So there was kind of some conundrums there, but I just knew that like, it did hurt my feelings as a professional to know, man, like, ah, if you can't see it now when it's staring you in the face, there's really no chance for me here, you know? And I still think believe that to this day i remember when i left that that i think bischoff made some kind of a comment that vince mcmahon won't know what to do with chris jericho i don't think eric bischoff knew knew what to do with chris jericho either 
Let's talk about your secret meeting with Vince. Of course, you're, you're frustrated with the way this Goldberg situation comes down. Eric is really pushing you to sign a contract renewal. You're dodging him at TV and everywhere you can just to not have the conversation. And you have this secret meeting with Vince that's almost become a legendary meeting. And in your book, you admit that you wanted to try to look as big as you could and you wanted to you know, maybe some wear some shoes that made you look a little taller and maybe wear a shirt that made you look a little more jacked. And Eric sort of mocked that in 83 weeks by saying, you know, I, I wanted Jericho as he was, not him pretending to be someone else. And you're, you're pretty critical of Eric when you write about that meeting because you sort of describe meeting Vince as meeting with a king and really compare Eric to a court jester. And I want once you to sort of talk about, you know, Eric sort of saying who you were instead of who you were pretending to be, and then defend the court jester and king comment. Now, nah, court jester's too stiff. Obviously, that's very, <laughs> very demeaning. It's actually pretty funny when I wrote that. When you, when you guys were reading that last week, I was like, oof, did I really write that? You forget sometimes. But um, what happened was when, when, when that thing, and here's the story about the, the contract renewal that Eric didn't bring out, is that we, we sat down and, and, and talked about a, a renegotiation. Uh, not a, sorry, not a, re- a, re- uh, a contract renewal, and it was for bigger money. I believe it was for four, four twenty-five and four fifty or so. It was a it was a, a substantial raise, and I agreed to it and shook hands with him on it. Problem was, I never got any paper on that for about four or five months, and I remember once again, I'm not going to say anything, but I was really insulted. Like if this was Hogan, you'd have that contract out the next day, and I was like, am I really so dismissive that? You make this deal and then don't even have a contract. Nothing comes in the mail or anything. So when he finally showed up with the contract, I, I remember thinking to myself, "I'm not. It doesn't. It's 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 void to me." You know, three four months with no communication about this. I was like, once again, there's no reason for me to be here because if it was that important, they would have wrapped it up the next day and I would have signed it. I would have stayed there another three years. So when he started coming with, with the paper, that's why I was avoiding him because at this point in time, I knew I was going to go work for Vince. So what happened was I called Russo. I said, I want to leave. Uh, when's your contract up? It was up, I believe, in June. And this was December. It was around Christmas time. He said, okay, great. I'll ask Vince. Vince wants to meet you. And we did a Nitro in Chicago. I remember I worked with Raven at the United Center. Uh, drove to the airport. I was supposed to go home. I remember they had a, a, a ticket home for me, and I didn't take it. And I thought, I hope nobody knows I didn't take the ticket. They'll wonder what happened. And then they got W got me a ticket, which was in economy, which I thought, oh, I thought, I thought you're supposed to fly in first class. Uh, when I landed, there was a, a chauffeur there with a, 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 a fake name on it. I believe you said it was Robinson or something along those lines. Um, whatever I said it was is what it was. I can't remember now. But um, uh, it, was, it was his limo driver called Tommy. Tommy doesn't work for him anymore, but Tommy was there for years. Tommy picked me up and drove me from, I believe it was JFK, all the way to Stanford, Connecticut. And I did have a tight black T-shirt on, and I did have cowboy boots on, and I did have, you know, I, I, I wanted to look big. I mean, this Vince McMahon, you know the story. You know what sure. I mean? He likes big guys. And, and listen, dude, I was 225, jacked up. I don't know if I was on the gas or not, but most of us at that point in time were at least dabbling in it. I was never crazy on it, but I, I probably had, had knew it was coming up and maybe did a cycle to look a little bit more sharp and a little bit more cut. Because this is Vince, right? So I remember going there, and uh, just, you know, it's so funny because it was only—it's the only time I've ever been at Vince's house. But I just remember knocking on the door, and Shane answered, and he goes, "Hey, I'm Shane McMahon." I'm like, "No shit, <laughs> you know who you are." And they took me into this room, and dude, it was like Vince, 
Jim Ross, Bruce, uh, Ed Ferrara, Shane, and they're all uh, Russo, and they're all sitting around a table having a booking meeting. Now think about me, Conrad, as twenty-seven years old, 20, yeah. 20, 27 year old kid, right? Um, been in the business for seven, eight years. Work for WCW under contract, and I'm sitting at Vince McMahon's house listening to a booking meeting as they write Raw. Crazy. How does that happen, right? How does that happen? Right. It, it doesn't even seem real. Like, it would never, ever happen now. And I specifically remember, and this might not be this name, but there's someone to finish, like, you know, we think D-Lo should go over. What do you think, Chris? And I'm like, well, yeah, sure, Vince, whatever you think. I think that's a smart move. Like, what do you, like, it's so crazy. We had lunch. They asked me what I wanted for lunch. They were like, Went to a deli and ordered, like, I don't know, whatever, I had a roast beef sandwich or something. Then there were, Vince's maid had made brownies. And I remember, you want a brownie, Chris? And we had a brownie. And, and I remember, like, uh, he's like, you want another one? And I didn't know if I should take another one, if it was, like, some kind of a test or something. And then he's like, two gentlemen deserve two brownies, right? And I was like, yeah, sure. And then he grabbed one. And I grew up laughing about brownies and stuff. And then we went into this other area of his house that had the big oil painting of him. I remember it was kind of a sunken uh, living room. And just talked, you know, and he never once, he never once asked me to come work for him. He was very smart. Just like, you know, when your contract ends, if maybe you consider coming here, what would you think about that? And I would remember just babbling like, oh, if I, if I had a chance like The Rock, I could be the next Rock for you. I mean, if I just all need is a chance. I'm blah, 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 blah. Um, and that was basically it. Hung out there for a bit and then I left and, you know, he never followed through. He never called me. Just said, you know, when your contract is up or when it's about to be up, you know, call me. And that's basically what happened, and that, that's when I was like, oh, man, I cannot wait to get out of WCW now. And I think around that time was when Eric showed up and started you know, um, bringing his, 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 his uh, contract. And he did have it in a leather bag, not a knapsack like a little kid, but he had it like in a leather kind of bag um, that he was carrying with him. And uh, he would always try and get me to sign it, and I'd always avoid him. Literally, if I saw him walking down the hall, I'd walk the other way, like hide. So when you finally break the news to him that – you know, thanks for the offer and the opportunity, but I'm out of here and I'm going to work for Vince. Allegedly, Bischoff flips out. What do you remember about that? Well, I mean, what I did around that time frame is I got hooked up with Barry Bloom and then John Taylor as well, which you guys spoke about. And once I kind of had those guys in my back, I had the confidence, like, you know, you can get out of there. You, we can help because I, I hired or hired. I worked with Barry. Like, I, I need help on how to get out of here. I don't know what to do. And so they gave me, you know, steps on what to do. Because Barry, uh, Eric refused to work with Barry, and him and Jason Hervey gave me names of guys that I should work with. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to work with one of your guys. And that's when Barry said, well, then have him use John Taylor. So um, basically, Eric continued. And then finally, they just said, you know, just tell him no. Tell him what you're going to do. And you know, the worst they can do is he jobs you out on TV for a few months, but whatever. Basically, when, when, when we sat down, I just said, you know, Eric, it's been too long. You know, he goes, well, we had a deal. You know, you, you shook my hand. I said, that was four months ago. He goes, so what? I said, Things have changed, you know. I and I'm not I'm not going to sign. I'm, I'm not going to do it. I never told him I was going to work for Vince. I said I said I just don't want to sign right now. I, it's not the same deal anymore, and my mind has changed. And that was the famous line that he totally said. He and I was the TV champion, and he goes, "Fine." He goes, "You don't want to sign your contract?" He goes, "No ticky, no laundry." <laughs> and I remember thinking, "What the f- does that mean?" No ticky, no laundry. And what it is, like, you, like it's an old joke. They go to a Chinese dry cleaner and they say, no ticky, no laundry. Like, you know, if you don't have your ticket, you don't get the laundry back. So if I don't sign the contract, you don't get that TV title. You're losing it tonight to Conan or the next night or whatever it was. And that was my punishment to lose to Conan. And I remember 
and this is my attitude at the time. I remember thinking, this is not a punishment. I said, I'm going to go out there and have the best match Conan has ever had. And I remember telling him that piece of shit uh, uh, submission he did, the Tequila Sunrise. Remember that? Right. It was so yeah. lame. It didn't look like anything. I said, dude, if you don't legit make me tap out, I'm not tapping out. So you better lay that in. I said, I'd rather you blow my knee out than not. And and Conan did, and we had a hell of, we had a hell of a match, kid. We had a, we had a really good match, and I remember thinking like that's that's my punishment, having a great match and dropping the TV title, you know. And and that to me was where I was at. Like I don't care, I'll lose to anybody. There's nothing you can do. Like I remember thinking like even if he takes away my ring music, I'll walk to the ring with a with a, a boombox playing my own music, like whatever it is. And and he didn't. He just took me off TV, and, and and I mentioned like that was my punishment. You're off TV, and the reason why I use that as punishment is because I still had, I still worked house shows. I was on all the house shows, and then I would go home for TV. So, you know, he didn't job me out, and and, and he could have, but he didn't like suspend me or anything. He just took me off TV, and I still worked the house shows, which were more fun anyways, and kind of ran out the rest of my contract. Well, what's fun too is even after that meeting, you have a series of matches with Saturn that are on pay per view, including a dress match. And I think if you know the writings on the wall, you know, standard wrestling 101 booking, you would think, okay, well, this guy's leaving. They're going to try to embarrass him before he leaves and diminish his value and put him in a dress. But instead, they put it on Saturn. And as a fan, I can't help but wonder what, did they not put the dress on Jericho for fear of he might get that shit over too? Actually, Perry wanted to wear the dress. He wanted to kind of transform into like a Marilyn Manson type thing. So that whole thing was all Perry's idea. Um, and I thought, oh, great, I'm going to end up wearing the dress, which I've, of course I would have got it over. You know, like I said, that's one thing I learned. I'll get anything over now. I don't care what it is. Um, but Perry wanted to do it. So once again, there's Jericho winning. I'm leaving and I'm winning. We go to Cancun, do a battle royal for MTV with uh, Kid Rock as the host. They put me over in the battle royal. It's like... I got a bigger push after I told him I was leaving than I did when I was still there. It's crazy. Is, is it true that uh, in your negotiations with Eric before you finally make this this final decision, you know, final answer, as they say on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, that you asked for a million-dollar contract? Like you said, hey, I'll stay for this? No, because they, they gave me this. The, 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 Eric finally did come in. It was funny because Eric was berating me and just kind of like he was so mad at me and just calling me names and all this other stuff. And in the meantime, Vince called me. I'll never forget. It was the day Wayne Gretzky retired. And uh, I, remember, I remember I had an answer machine that was like, you know, something like, you know, unless this is Wayne Gretzky, I don't want to talk to anybody. I'm in a state of mourning. Leave a message. Boop. Hello, Chris. This is Vince McMahon. Uh, it's not Wayne. No, he said, hello, this is not Wayne Gretzky. This is Vince McMahon. But I would like to talk to you on your day of mourning uh, regardless. So please. And, of course, I pick up the phone and talk to him. And that's when, um, you know, that's when I said we, we started talking about me actually coming in for real. So I had one guy calling me, and you know, you know how Vince is—the silver-tongued gentleman—and I had the other guy just calling me a piece of shit. I mean, which one would you decide? So right. the offer that was given to me from WWE was four fifty a year, um, and like I said, I would have taken a bag of used hockey pucks, not to demean WCW, but I wanted out. I wanted to go to WWE. I've been waiting to go to WWE for nine years. I would have done it for next to nothing. Is what my point was. And Eric did come back and give me this kind of structured deal that said you get like a base pay of like, I don't know, 500 grand. But if you work in the main events 10 times, you get this bonus, you get that bonus. And if everything worked out the way it was, if you draw six shows of 10,000 uh, people in, in, the, in the crowd, you know, you, you'll, you'll make 750 or 800 or whatever it was. It was not a, a certain number. And I, I might have said, if you give me a million dollars, I'll consider it. But even that... I was, I've never been about the money. You know, I was about the opportunity. And Vince played his cards right. I asked him years later, why did you have me over at your house? And he said, well, I wanted to see if I could trust you. 
Like, what do you mean? He said, well, I wanted to see if it would get out that, that you were at my house. And, of course, I didn't tell anybody. Um, and whether that's why he really had me over or not, probably wanted to impress me, but also was kind of see what's this guy all about. Because, you know, and, uh, and maybe that's why he did have me over. I don't know. But um, I haven't heard anybody else in history that's ever been at Vince's house when they were working for another company. And maybe when you mentioned uh, the oil painting, it, it has become something of a, a legend. Can you describe the oil painting? Here's the thing. I can't because I was so nervous and so, like, it was so surreal to me. Like, this is the first time basically I've ever met Vince McMahon. I'm in his house. You know, I grew up as a WWE disciple, as a fanatic. Like, you know, I, I stand back. Vince McMahon's music video. I knew it off by heart. Reaching for the sky, stand back. You know, and all the other stuff that he's done. And here I am in his house. So I was really freaking out. So I remember that there was a painting of Vince. I don't remember anything else other than the fact that now in my head, because there's that painting on Seinfeld of Kramer, that that right. you know, to me it looks like the Kramer painting with Vince's head on it. it. Probably looked nothing like that, but in my mind, that's what I see in my in my memory is the Kramer Seinfeld painting, but it's of Vince and not of Kramer. I always really hoped that it was uh, more like uh, the painting that we saw in Ghostbusters. Do you remember that one? Yeah, right. More evil. Where the eyes, yeah. eyes are following you. It might have been, man. Like I said, like who knows? Who they, they maybe they filmed the whole thing, or I don't know, man. Like like I said, this the whole concept of it was so surreal. But once I was at Vince's house, that's when I pretty much knew. Like I don't care what happens. You know, they can offer me whatever they want. I'm not going to stay. And I even remember talking to Eric one last time towards the end, where he was telling me about this new idea that he had. Um, first of all, he was convinced that the what's that guy's name, Master P. He was remember Master P and was at the No Limit oh, yeah. Soldiers. He was, con- say, oh. yeah, he was convinced that was going to be a game changer like Mike Tyson. And I remember him telling me, like, this wow. is going to be a game changer. I mean, this guy, he sells out the Superdome on his own. And, of course, drew like 4,000 people when he was there. Uh, and the other thing I remember is he said, we're doing this thing of, of new blood versus old blood. And we want you to maybe uh, um, uh, lead the new blood. And that was, that was when they did, they did do that feud of kind of some of the newer guys against the old guys, the millionaire club and all that other stuff. And. You know, I just, once again, like it just didn't appeal to me. I remember years before when I had that meeting with him, uh, uh, where he gave me a, 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 a he ra- gave me a raise, um, renegotiated my contract. He said, you know, I wanted, I really could see you and Piper doing something, and I was like, now that's what I'm talking about. Like me and Piper, right. like that, that's it. Like years later in WWE, we did tremendous promos together. I mean, Roddy wasn't much of a worker at that point, but as we know, cares about the match. It's about the promos and the build. And he never followed through with that. We ne- I never even had a match against Brad Armstrong. Like anything that was ever pitched to me never really came came to fruition. So all this stuff about leading the new blood and this weird contract with all the different, you know, levels of financial. I was like, you know what? I just I just want to go. I want to be gone. And once you mentally check out, you're done, at least for me. There was nothing that could really bring me back. Let's talk briefly about, uh, and, and this will sort of wrap up the story, because I do think this really describes WCW at the time. Allegedly, you were getting merchandise checks, and famously, one of them was for zero dollars and zero cents, and they had to FedEx it to you. So they they paid to ship a check for zero dollars to you. And there's something that has almost become the, one of the more debated topics online over the years. The story of, I believe it was your mother who picked up an action figure and what the receipt said and the way that all sort of reconciled. Can you set the record straight on that? I think it was actually my wife. It was, it was a, 
Uh, and I did. I got the zero dollars zero cents, and I, I for some reason I threw that one away. But I did keep one. I still have this day of zero dollars and fifteen cent merch check, which is great. And that also doesn't describe the one where I opened it up and there, I opened up a FedEx and there was nothing in it. That was a good one too. <laughs> Legit s- sent to Canada from Atlanta, so you know it's about forty fifty bucks. So I, I got the, the 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 FedEx full of nothing that day. So thanks guys. Yeah, I mean, uh, my girlfriend at the time was now my wife. Uh, I believe it was her. It went to a store. And bought a, a Dean Malenko, Chris Jericho uh, set. Uh, it's the one where there's fists and there's magnets on the fists, so you can put the two fists together and I guess do whatever you want to do. And um, the receipt on it said Hulk Hogan Sting on it. And just remember thinking that's really peculiar, kind of weird. And that's why I was like wondering, like, is every doll in the place registered as a Hogan so he gets the the you know the the residuals from it. I know Bishop's like, oh it's a big conspiracy, but you know, maybe it was just a mistake. Maybe that certain Toys R Us for some reason maybe she tried to ring up a, a Jericho and it came up as a Hogan. But it seemed very strange to me. Allegedly, you know, people who uh listen to eighty three weeks who have a hand in like stocking shelves say that that whole story is really much ado about nothing in that if you got say a coloring book that had an assortment of different versions. Maybe there's a Batman version and a Superman version and a Wonder Woman version. If you ring up any of those, it's probably going to say Superman because that's the more popular UPC, and that's just the way the price administrator had labeled you know, the inventory. So technically, all of the receipts would say Superman, but that doesn't necessarily mean from a reordering standpoint that they're only going to order that one. It's just the master UPC because all of them are priced the same. So maybe it ringing up as a Hogan Sting thing makes sense, but it is sort of interesting because, and I'm sure you can speak to this, that's not the way your statements look whenever you get a royalty check from WWE, right? Yeah, and like I said, you know, I'm not thinking, I think more than anything, it's just the point. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, well, of course, of course it's going to say Hogan on it because it was always about Hogan in the NWO, in WCW, which, as it should have been until a certain point, then you have to... You have to switch the talent. That's the thing about wrestling is always talent shifting. And can you imagine, like I said, if you would have had Eddie Guerrero versus Sting, Chris Jericho versus Randy Savage, Chris Benoit versus Hulk Hogan, they would have been great matches and people would have been very excited. It's something that WWE, I remember one time uh, Triple H complaining to Undertaker back in the day when, when, when you know, H was a different guy, mad that instead of him working The Undertaker at a pay-per-view, it was me versus Triple H, Benoit versus Undertaker, and Kurt Angle versus The Rock. And it was like, you know, I remember overhearing it uh, in the dressing room. There was some complaining about it, the fact that these three new guys were working with the three, you know, top guys. But that's how the three of us became top guys, was from working with the top guys. Then suddenly, instead of three guys that can work, you had six guys that can work. And, and that's, that's what the business is about. And they never did that in WCW. Ever, ever, ever. And that's when, like, you know, you could see that happening. And that's why the company dropped off. Like, when I left in 99... Like, look what happened two, less than two years later. Vince bought WCW. Had I not left in 99, my whole career trajectory could be different because then I wouldn't have come in as Chris Jericho, the Millennium Man, the Countdown, all that other stuff. I would have come in as a nameless, faceless guy, once again, in a group of 20 guys. I mean, you know, I wouldn't have been nameless, faceless, but you're just coming in with everybody else. It would have, it would have been, you know, a whole different vibe for me. And I think the reason why WCW closed, and whatever you want to say, my opinion is that they didn't uh, ingratiate the younger guys with the older guys. It was the Indian caste system, like I mentioned. And the guys that could really spark, that you saw really making a difference, 
Um, it, it didn't matter. It didn't matter what you did. You could never get out of that level that you were seen at. And I think that's, that's basically the main reason why WCW closed and why there was an exodus of guys to get out of there. I mean, once I left, first Big Show was the one that left. That was a huge deal. Then I left. Huge deal. Then they made the stupid mistake of letting Chris, Dean, Eddie, and Perry go. Like, there's your whole, like, think of that, that, that just losing those guys right there. All of us future world champions, with the exception of Malenko, who's one of the top agents in the business now. So, like I said, I, I think when, 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 you, when you talk about Eric and, and all the genius that he had, I think his biggest downfall was he didn't see it in us or somebody told him that we didn't have it. Whereas you have Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit, Chris Jericho, and, and, and the Big Show as you know, four of the greatest champions in WWE history. And as far as Big Show and, and, and Jericho, we've been there for almost 20 years working on top. I mean, if this is a football team or a baseball team or a hockey team, those are two first-round all-star choices that you let get away. If you had to um, sum up Eric Bischoff and your relationship then and now, just to sort of wrap up this response to 83 weeks, what, how would you do so? I have a lot of respect for Eric Bischoff. I really like him as a guy, and in retrospect, I really appreciate um, what he did for the business and, and just the, the the maverick attitude that he had and just kind of bucking the system and you know beating, beating the WWE for 83 weeks. That's why Vince takes everybody as competition right now, Impact, New Japan, Ring of Honor, whatever it may be, because he's seen it happen before. When Eric took over WCW, they were nothing. I remember living in Knoxville, and I, I, I went to get my power bill, uh, and I, there was two WCW tickets inside. I couldn't believe it. It was my lucky day. Meanwhile, I found out that there was 5,000 other tickets inside all the other electric bills because they couldn't get anybody to come to the show in Knoxville, which is a wrestling you know, hotbed. So I, right. I just think that working there and seeing you know, what my future was there, I might have blamed it on Bischoff more than I should have. He was kind of the scapegoat to me. Uh, I wrote some mean things about him that I don't really mean. Obviously, Vince and Eric are very different, you know, like we spoke about. Um, and that was just Eric's style. Whereas Vince, Vince's style is, is you know, he's, he's larger than life. Eric made some mistakes. He also made a lot of great moves, and he took that company to the top for two years or so. I think that my time there, I wouldn't change it for anything. I'm glad I spent three years there, and I'm glad I left when I did. It was, it was the way it was meant to be, and I learned a lot from being there. And I had a lot of fun. You know, I really did. You think of the good and bad. I mean, made some great friends, had some great matches, you know, toured around the States. I didn't really go worldwide with WCW, but toured around the States and learned a lot about how to be Chris Jericho and how to be a top main event guy. And most importantly, how to use the time and the opportunities you're given to, to make the most out of it. And, and to, before I leave, and they, somebody posted it and I sent it to you this week. When I, when I left WCW, I, did, I sent a fax to Eric saying, thank you so much the opportunity thank you for everything you've done for me and hopefully we can work together again sometime and that's that's my my feelings on eric and wcw yeah we had ups and downs yeah there were some things i didn't like but the bottom line was he gave me a chance when no one else did vince wasn't calling me you know i could have worked for paulie for another couple years but once again right after i left the ecw they started going down you know japan was what it was but eric gave me a chance to, to work on a na- national basis on on the hottest show in the in the country, and that's one of the reasons why I'm still on top to this day and have a huge fan base because a lot of people, yourself included, got to know Chris Jericho through my time on on, on Nitro, and that's all thanks to Eric Bischoff. So, give him nothing but respect and credit now. All of the 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 bad things aside. 
If you haven't already, go check out Eric Bischoff's side of the story. 83weeks.com is where you can catch it. And, uh, man, I don't know how to wrap up your show, but as a fan, this was quite a treat. I appreciate the opportunity to come on and, and break this down with you. Well, it was fun, too. Like I said, you don't think about stuff like that. You just talk about segments of it. And on my show, I love talking to other people, but I never really get a chance to to talk about myself to this depth. So you're the right man for the job. Uh, I appreciate you guys spending so much time on me for 83 weeks and for doing this, Conrad. And next time, when Fozzie comes to Huntsville, I know you're going to be at the show, we'll do a, a Conrad Thompson. I'll have you on my show, and we can talk about your story because you become the man of the hour now. Well, that's nice you to say, man. We're just trying to uh, get that Chris Jericho rub, and I appreciate you doing that for 83 weeks, and I know Eric will too. And I'm glad to know that um, – you know, everybody's getting along better now because there were some scathing comments in the book and it did feel like a little back and forth, but to know that everybody's hey. in a better place now, it's a good story. And it was for a couple of years. I remember the one time when Eric started in, WCW, in WWE, we were in Nottingham, England. I looked over in the corner of the room and I saw Steve Austin and Eric having a uh, beer. And I remember going to Steve going, what are you doing? How can you do that? He goes, Eric, he's a cool guy, man. He's a real cool guy. And once Steve said that, I was like, yeah, he is a cool guy. What the hell am I holding a grudge for? And that was it. So that was back in 2003 or four. So, you know, it's like when Hunter and I kind of made amends 10 years ago, we're like, what the hell are we so mad at each other for anyway? You know, when you're younger, things, you know, are a lot more amplified than, than when you get older. So, like I said, I, I appreciate Eric and respect all the work that he's done in the business, outside the business, all the shows. Scott Bayo is 45 and single. Love it. There you go. Man, thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. All right, Conrad, talk to you soon. And uh, thank you guys for listening. I forgot whose show this is. It's my show. Uh, so uh, we'll talk to you in the future, Conrad. See you, buddy. Thanks, man. Skiavone, what I have right here in my hands is a registered letter from the head, from the owner, well, pretty much the owner of the entire free world, a letter from Ted Turner himself. Tonight. <clears throat> Me, 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 me. Dear Mr. Jericho, Mr. Jericho, after reviewing your request regarding a final decision on your grievance with World Championship Wrestling, I have reached the following conclusions. Firstly, let me commend you on your recent performances within WCW. Your work has been incredible, your dedication has been remarkable, and your tenacity has been second to none. As a matter of fact, I see in you a lot of what made a young Southern man into the billionaire media maven he is today. You even receive high praise from my lovely wife, Jane, who incidentally sends her regards. Well, Tony, she's such a sweetheart. That's great. I enjoy my summers fishing in your homeland of Canada, as I equally enjoyed watching your father excel in the National Hockey League. So, in regards to your legal search for justice, I have only this to say. This is where it gets good. After reviewing the tapes of the Battle Royal at Slamboree, as well as the subsequent match, I agree that the circumstances leading to your loss were less than by the book. Therefore, Dean Malenko should not be the champion! Yes, yes, yes! Should not be the champion. Right, should not be the champ. Ted said so. However, your incessant whining and complaining has sickened me, so I must agree with WCW President J.J. Dillon in saying, tough luck, the decision stands. Dean Malenko is the undisputed cruiserweight champion. Yeah, I can read that too, that's pretty good. As far as your legal precedent goes, this is the WCW, so your little-known codicil will remain unused, undisclosed, and unfortunate 
Similar to your wrestling career, signed Uncle Ted Turner!